Bum, 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 bum. Bang, 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 bang. Bangly bang. On the Empire Podcast this week, we're live at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Honestly, I'm not going to do it again. Do it again. No, um, that was amazing. Who knew three people could make so much noise? That's extraordinary. <laughs> Hello, Paul. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast, recorded live before a studio audience today at Edinburgh's historic film house in the heart of Edinburgh's historic cultural quarter. Just a historic stone's throw from Edinburgh's historic Edinburgh Castle. Uh, how wonderfully bloody historic. Uh, we're doing this at 11.30am on a Sunday morning, which means I'm not technically alive, never mind awake. Thank you all for coming. Think of this not so much as an episode of the podcast, think of it more as an episode of Sunday brunch, but with films instead of food, which makes me Tim Lovejoy. Um, <laughs> Yeah, maybe forget I said that. Anyway, we're back for the second year in a row. We've got some amazing guests lined up for you over the next uh, couple of hours, including the brilliant Emily Mortimer, star of uh, Doll and M and The Newsroom, Karen Hardy, who's the director of the uh, great horror film The Hallow and the forthcoming remake of The Crow, and Robert Sheehan, the Irish actor who's amazing, and the star of The Messenger. We'll meet them later on, but first, for the first time in a long while, please welcome three colleagues of such lethal cunning. We extended the budget just for this live podcast. First up, a lady who I'm dubbing for this week at least, the Queen of Geek Scots, because as far as I'm aware, uh, nothing bad ever happened to the real Queen of Scots. Uh, will you please lose your heads for Helen O'Hara? <laughs> Next up is our art house guru, uh, a man who's jumped at the chance while he's in Scotland to go on the ever popular tourist trap that is the Under the Skin Tour. Uh, <laughs> Basically, that means he's driving around Glasgow in a transit van, luring builders into his fiscus sex goo. Would you please welcome Phil Disemblian? <laughs> and last but not least, a man who loves whiskey galore, train spotting, and filth. But enough about his hobbies. It's Ali Plum! <laughs> Anyway, as I said, I can't believe I'm going to do this. Uh, as I said, it's our second podcast in Scotland, which means I feel a song coming on, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I can't believe Do it, Chris. I can't believe I'm doing this. Do it. Right. I'm sober as well. I don't even drink. What the hell? Anyway, join me, if you will. Okay. No. Yes, it's the remix to Ignition Empire Podcast Edition, because we're always saying three stars is a recommendation. Hey, join <laughs> There's another verse. There's another verse. No, this is. I didn't change the lyrics to the first. I didn't change the lyrics to that verse. Yeah, well, less about for next year. Enough about nonsense. I'll finish the lyrics for next year. Uh, let's go on with the show. Uh, usually at this point in the show we um, have readers' questions, but we're going to save those for the end. You're going to get your chance to quiz later on. We're going to start with movie news. Now it's a Sunday. Uh, we record the podcast usually on a Friday. Uh, we put the podcast out sorry, on, a Thursday, on a Thursday. We put the podcast out on a Friday. So there's going to be loads of movie news. Hopefully, well, not hopefully. There's going to be loads of movie news breaking between now and next Friday, but we're going to talk about what we can. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to leave a space just in case something amazing happens, like the, the name of Independence Day 2 or the casting of Spider-Man or, you know, Star Wars just stops. Something like that. We're going to leave a space for that right here. And here we are in the Empire Pod booth. It is now Thursday, June Hang on, I've just got off a plane. 25th. So sure. 25th, thanks, Helen. I'm here with Helen. Uh, Ali and Phil have mysteriously disappeared up the Royal Mile. 
So here are Helen and I to talk about the movie news that happened after we recorded the podcast on Sunday, which we all knew would happen. Um, well, we asked Hollywood not to. We did ask them not to, and they they did not listen. Uh, and there's some obviously some very interesting news in terms of upcoming movies. Uh, one tremendously sad story as well. Um, but uh, if you listen to the bit after this, you will see that I have my Nostradamus cap on because I predicted that three things would happen during the week, Helen. You did. I predicted that Independence Day 2 would get a new name. Yes, you now, did. to be fair, I had inside information on that one. Uh, uh, I predicted that Spider-Man would be cast and that it should be Tom Holland. Oh you my did God. Say that. Who would have believed it? I predicted the lottery numbers were 7, 14, <laughs> 28. Uh, and I predicted that Star Wars would just stop. That they would, that they, they would just go, you know what, we're just going to, we're just not going to bother. Uh, that has not happened. Thank goodness. Uh, yeah. But you will hear Lewis' predictions. But let's talk about the, the two I got right, kind of. Uh, so Independence Day 2, I've just come back, stepped off a plane from Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, where I visited the set of Independence Day Resurgence. 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 It's a good word. And I don't know whether that's colon or not. You know, us, we're quite yeah. uh, anal about that sort of stuff. Uh, we're anal about the our colons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, confusing. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I don't know whether it's Independence Day Resurgence. Or Independence Day resurgence. So intriguing. What do you think? What do you think of that? I, I think it's a perfectly decent title. It's not one we've seen a bajillion times. It's not like Independence Day Returns, which I mean, to be honest, nothing's gonna make a lot of sense. Independence Day Resurgence. Is it the day that is resurging? That seems mm. odd. Oh no, not another Independence Day or yeah. even more Independence Day, or now that's what I call mm. Independence Day. Yeah, I mean, those are all worse, so I guess we can be yeah. grateful they didn't go for those. <laughs> we can be grateful. Um, I can't say too much, because I'm obviously embargoed up the Wazoo, and I was there doing a, a Fiddy Bloggisode right. on, on the set of Independence Day 2. So Fiddy Bloggisode resurgence. Uh, <laughs> we're hopefully going to ramp that stuff up more and more over the next few months as well. Um, and so, But I was on set, and I got a tour of the art department, and I won't say too much, because I don't really know the plot of the film. Mm. Aliens come, smash shit up and we try and stop them. That's essentially it. But I will say this. The scale of this movie is mind-boggling. Absolutely mind-boggling. I saw images on the wall of the art department and if Roland Emmerich and his uh, effects team could pull them off, it will blow your mind. Hooray! It will make the first movie look like a Rob Schneider film. Wow. I mean, you know I'm a big Emmerich apologist apart from the film that should not be named. Uh, It shall remain... Anonymous, oh! but I'm excited. I'm excited about Independence Day too. Um, for uh, the most part, Day resurgence. Resurgence. Helen. Sorry, I am intrigued that the cast photo that was tweeted appeared to include Brent Spiner. Yes, Brent Spiner is back as Doctor Brackish Oaken. We all remember that character. Uh, that character name certainly. Um, yes, uh, he was fining journalists twenty dollars if they said. How are you back in this movie? Didn't you die in the first movie? He made a mistake asking me for twenty dollars because I didn't have twenty dollars. Yeah, well, that was obviously. Uh, and then he would, if a journalist didn't ask, yeah, how he was back in this movie, uh, usually terribly researched journalists who had no idea he was even in the first one. I'm not <laughs> kidding. Oh because no. Because things like this attract a lot of junket whores who know nothing about the film that which they're, that they're covering. He gave them twenty dollars out of his own wallet, so that was nice. Uh, Wait, he, so he, he, he was rewarding... He wasn't rewarding... actually penalising. He was, okay. he was a, it was a kind of more... Uh, a a running gag. A penalty, yes. But he, I actually watched him give $20 to a journalist who had no idea who he was. And it was kind of like, oh, really? Okay, you've just... Okay, you're, you're a bad journalist, but now you're richer. Mm. Um, anyway, anyway. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, uh, he's back. Jeff Goldblum's back. Bill Pullman's back with a beard. I'm not spoiling anything. You've seen the pictures. I mean, uh, if Jeff Goldblum <clears throat> and Bill Pullman... And Data are in a movie. I'm there. 
well, yeah. Yep. I yep. mean, yes, I believe there are some younger people as well. There I don't really care people. quite so much. Micah Monroe, formerly of this pod booth. Yeah. Uh, Liam Hemsworth, uh, Jesse Usher, uh, who plays Will Smith's stepson. Uh, Vivica A. Fox is back. Judd Hirsch is back. There's, it's interesting who's back and who's not. Um, so you could maybe presume that the ones who aren't back have bit the dust in the interim. Um, but yeah, it's all very, very exciting. I'm sure I'll be able to talk about it in greater detail as, as things go along. But I'm telling you, some of the images I saw, mind-blowing. So anyway, so that's the Independence Day uh, resurgence. The next thing, of course, is uh, finally Marvel and Sony uh, have announced the casting of the new, new Spider-Man. Um, mm-hmm. And it is, uh, as I was hoping, once I saw the shortlist of people who were, who were uh, in, uh, under consideration, uh, Tom Holland. Now, you've been a fan of him for years, since the, since the Impossible. Since the Impossible, uh, yeah, he's phenomenal in that film. I really like that film. I think that that film deserved a lot more than it got. Masterfully directed by Juan Antonio Bayona. And Tom Holland is great in it. Uh, and so, he obviously won the Empire uh, Best Male Newcomer as well. That yeah, he year. Did, yeah. So, uh, we can spot talent as well. We can. Uh, and uh, he's great. So, once again, Spider-Man remains British. Mm-hmm. He does, yes. We've, a, we've kept one hero yeah. anyway. There's a little story about that coming up in the podcast later on as well. <laughs> British Spider-Man. Listen out for that. It's going to be uh, embarrassing for me, but there you go. Uh, but yeah, what do you think? I think it's, I think it's pretty good. I, think, uh, I like him as an actor. I th- nothing against him at all. I think, he's, I think he's really good. By the time you know, we see his standalone film, he, is gonna, he isn't going to be in his teens anymore, I think. No. No. Uh, so they're, they're, you know, their aim to get an, an actually authentic teenage Spider-Man isn't 100% realised in him, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I mean, 29. He's not 29. He's not 29, which is, which is yeah, he's, he's, he's more than a decade younger than, than Garfield yeah. was. Um, so he is much closer to his teens, that is fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's a good actor. He seems, I don't have much of an impression of him as a personality and, and what he's going to particularly bring to the role beyond mm-hmm. obviously talent. Um, but I look forward to finding out. Yeah, so, um, absolutely. So yeah, good he, for him. Uh, apparently he um, screen tested with Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans separately. Oh, interesting. So uh, to see whether there was chemistry there between the two of them. Would you not just go up for the role just to do that, though? I, I tried. <laughs> I really tried. Uh, but they wouldn't let me in. No, that seems, seems mean of they them. They said, you're too old and fat. Age discrimination. Which is kind Looks of something that actually just did happen to me. <laughs> I was just, I I was literally at Albuquerque Airport about fifteen hours ago, something like that. Okay. And uh, I was handing my going through the the customs security check there uh, to get on my my flight, and uh, the the customs guy at Albuquerque uh, Airport took a look at my passport photograph, and said, <laughs> the confidence building words, what happened? <laughs> and I just kind of went, I've put on some weight, I've got facial hair, I don't. What, do you, what? Okay, I will join the gym. Is that what you want me to do? Do you want me to like just shed some pounds? Okay. Maybe he meant what happened that you haven't aged a day. <laughs> so negative for you. Do you have a portrait in your attic by any chance, <laughs> Mr. Hewitt? No, he meant I'm a blubber. Uh, one final thing on Tom Holland. Yes. I would recommend historian Tom Holland's books, Persian Fire and Rubicon. <laughs> They're very, very good. And also director Tom Holland's film, Fright Night, for example. Well, yes. Uh, it, Tom Holland is on Twitter. Uh, both Tom Hollands are on Twitter. So Tom Holland is on Twitter as Tom Holland 1996, which yes. is the year of his birth, which oh, makes God. me feel really terrifying. Um, you, you, you think you feel old, wait until you go on the set of Independence Day 2, sorry, Resurgence, and you ask some of the new cast what age they were when the movie came out, and they go, well, I wasn't really alive, or I was two years old, or I was six years old, and you, 
<laughs> Great. Um, but anyway, Tom Holland's on Twitter as at Tom Holland 1996. He's he's very good on Twitter. Give him a follow. And Tom Holland, the director of Fright Night and Child's Play, is also on Twitter as real Tom Holland. So, and he was getting a lot of people congratulating him, <laughs> which was very charming. Actually, he dealt with yeah. it very well. He dealt with it very well indeed. Uh, other Spider-Man news as well is that uh, they also have a director for the yes. Spider-Man film, John Watts who is a director with a comedy background. Apparently he's directed a lot of stuff for the Onion News Network, which is very, very funny. Uh, but his uh, his movie Cop Car was a hit at Sundance. Uh, it's a Cohen-esque thriller, which is coming out here. I, I imagine it'll be coming, I imagine this release will be expedited uh, in the wake of this, uh, this news. Uh, it's a thriller in which two boys steal a uh, cop car. They just come across a cop car, a police cruiser. And they steal it and they go on a joyride. Uh, but it belongs to Kevin Bacon's sheriff. And he's, a, he's a badden. And he wants the cop car back because there's something in it that will incriminate him. <gasps> and thus begins a tense chase. Apparently very, very, very good. But uh, apparently Marvel wanted him as much for the comedic background as, as anything else. Sam Raimi was, was, I guess, tried and tested in the special effects department. Less so Mark Webb and I would guess so even less so uh, John Watts. But... Uh, intriguing. Somebody said on Twitter that the studios swoop into Sundance and pick up all the white men. That's obviously very, very mean. But at the same time, (laughs) if if you look at John Watts, you've got to conclude that it's not just experience. It's, you know, it's about something else. So let's hope other people get his chances. That's great. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be be interesting. I know a lot of people are quite cynical and jaded about having Spider-Man again. We'll say this because a lot of people were were saying this to me on, on Twitter the other day. I'm not interested in another reboot. This will not be a reboot so to speak. It will not be an origin story. Kevin Feige has already said that he is aware that we know how Spider-Man became Spider-Man. So this movie is going to kick off with him already Spider-Man. He will show up in Civil War as Spider-Man. Uh, so the, the, the Spider-Bite has happened. Uncle yeah. Ben's dead. That's all, that's all done. That's all done and dusted. So that's, that's intriguing to yes. me. Feige's smart enough to know that we'd be bored by that, that stuff again. Did you, did you see the thing? I mean, the, the Sony hack stuff is... A moral quagmire, but um, did you see that his notes were? He he gave a bunch of notes on Amazing Spider-Man two to Sony executives, which were largely ignored. But his notes are absolutely spot on and would have improved the movie immeasurably. I'd say so. This is a guy who knows, I think, how to do Spider-Man right. Uh, but there you go. We'll find out next year and in 2017. Very 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 sad news to discuss now. James Horner, the great Oscar-winning composer of. Where do, you begin? Where do you begin? Titanic, <laughs> um, obviously, Avatar, uh, Braveheart, uh, Commando, Aliens, Aliens uh, Battle Beyond the Stars, Willow, uh, Willow, uh, just a, be- a beautiful mind, extraordinary composer, died in tragic circumstances on Monday uh, at the age of just 61 when um, a plane he was piloting, he was a keen, uh, keen pilot, uh, crashed in, in LA. Um, just awful, awful, awful uh, way to go. But Again, one of the situations where you just realized when it happened and you just saw the outpouring of love again on Twitter, just how much this man had soundtracked. Yeah, soundtracked our lives. Absolutely. From, I mean, I think Wrath of Khan was his was his big breakthrough. It wasn't his first film. I didn't even mention that. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't, but it wasn't his first film. You know, he'd he'd been going for a while at that stage, but that was his big step up into into big kind of prestige projects, if you will. Although that, when it started off, was anything but prestige. I think it's probably fair to say. But that just showed kind of what he was capable of, and he was always very wary of being being pigeonholed. Uh, He turned on Lord of the Rings because he didn't want to do another epic so soon after. 
probably Titanic at that point. Um, interestingly, he did the, the Amazing Spider-Man, of course, uh, but turned down the Amazing Spider-Man too because he didn't think it was very good. Which yeah, brings it all together. He wasn't, he wasn't backward in coming forward, was he? About, no, he would. Um, he would give it to you straight. Yeah, his his uh, his. I think his opinion on the the new world, his experience working with Terrence Malick, mm-hmm. he found incredibly frustrating. And he uh, he was very vocal about that in the past. And he's described working with Cameron on Aliens as a nightmare, yeah. um, as has Cameron, to be honest. Um, Cameron maintains Horner didn't give himself enough time to do it. Horner maintains that Cameron was, was a nightmare. Um, probably both are somewhat true because Horner was always extremely busy, extremely pro- prolific. But it's in, what's really interesting, of course, about that is that they found uh, a working relationship that worked brilliantly for the mammoth tasks of of Titanic and Avatar. Avatar, in, in particular, apparently he was working from 4 a.m. until 10 every day for months, you know, taking uh, samples of music from around the world, experimenting with uh, altering them digitally to get an, a really alien sound. Yeah. Absolutely astonishing amount of work. Yeah, uh, he was fantastic. I think, for me, he was one of the, certainly I'd say the big four for me growing up, obviously Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams. Mm. Uh, James Horner and Alan Silvestri were the people who soundtracked my childhood, my life. Yeah, absolutely astonishing. Uh, what's your What's your favorite theme? It's It's so weird. I can't think beyond uh, Aliens. I can't think beyond Bishop's Countdown in yeah. Aliens, which is this wonderfully driving, propulsive piece of music that still makes the hairs stand up in the back of my neck when I listen to it. Uh, I can't think beyond uh, the epilogue uh, at the end of uh, Wrath of Khan, and I can't think beyond. Those bloody steel drums <laughs> on commando, which is an extraordinary <laughs> use of instrumentation. I can get beyond those okay. That, that yeah. one I'm all right with. I did sit down yesterday and watch Aliens, actually, in a sort of tribute of my yeah. own. Um, I love Willow. I think his Willow score is is absolutely beautiful. And I think it, it you can hear little... Uh, little sounds in it that that sound familiar, almost from the Lord of the Rings score. Like like there's something about the New Zealand landscape that strikes people the same way, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. But uh, and he even sort of because he didn't listen back to his own scores, so sometimes s- certain themes would come back in later on. There's little bits in House of Sand and Fog that echo Willow bizarrely. Um, yeah, but it's such of, a beautiful, yeah. such a beautiful score. Bits of uh, Star Trek Wrath of Khan pop up a little bit in Aliens, which is which is which is. Interesting and, and fine. I mean, yeah, his his last two movies are Southpaw, um, which is coming out very very soon. The Anton Fuqua, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, boxing movie, and then the Thirty Three. Um, I don't know whether he completed the, his work in that, uh, to be honest. Uh, which is the Chilean uh, miners drama with Antonio Banderas, which is coming out later in the year in the states. The fact that it has released out in the states would indicate that he finished his work, and obviously he was going to work. He was going to score the Avatar sequels yeah. as well. It's far too early to speculate what might happen with that. But uh, you know, he he was from all accounts uh, a, a tremendous guy. Uh, uh, Ian Freer, um, who occasionally appears in the podcast, uh, writes for Empire, obviously, uh, is a huge, huge fan of James Horner and, and spoke to him. I think one of the last interviews Horner ever did uh, a couple of months ago mm-hmm. uh, for uh, Last Issue. And the full interview is actually available on our website. And it's very good, very frank, very very candid about a lot of stuff. Yeah, just a, tr- a tremendous, tremendous loss. But we're going we're gonna to talk about one more bit of, of movie news now so we can segue <laughs> back into the End of the Live podcast. And this is... Fantastic Beasts news, isn't it? Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, yes. Um, the news is that Ezra Miller um, is now lined up for a role in the film as Kidan. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Apologies, pre-fans, if I'm not. As in people who are going to be fans, but they haven't really, 
you know, because I haven't seen pre funds. I, th- I feel like it, it's the kind of movie that will have pre funds. Anyway, uh, he is lined up for uh, the role of another magician. Obviously, we already have Eddie Redmayne as Newt Scamander, uh, our hero. Yes. Um, and uh, Catherine Waterstone, who was so good recently opposite Joaquin Phoenix in... I forgot Inherent, the name of the film. Inherent Vice. Inherent Vice, thank you. Inherent Vice. I was thinking Infinite it's Jest. Quite it's quite apt that you forgot the name of that film thank in particular, you. isn't it, really? <laughs> uh, yeah, she's great in that. And, uh, of course, her dad... Yes, is Sam Waterston, indeed. So you know uh, she's good. A.K.A. Jack McCoy on Law and Order. Uh, so if you do a set visit for this, because you're the Harry Potter uh, expert at Empire, if you do a set visit for this and you get to meet her, right? Okay. Can you get her to nudge her dad to make more episodes? Okay, I'll, I'll ask. I'll That's ask. your number one priority. Getting back to the news just quickly. This is not news. <laughs> um, so it's kind of shaping up. I think that sounds like it's another major role. It also shows that Warner Brothers wants to be in the Ezra Miller business. Of course, he's already signed up to play The Flash in their Aww. Justice League. Yes, the other Flash. Aww. No, not Gordon, the other one. Gordon's alive. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes, and apparently uh, a last sort of uh, major role, I guess, or maybe not the last, but another major role, which is still up for grabs, is uh, a rival wizard to Newt's commander. And apparently Michael Sarah and Josh Gad are in talks for that one. So that's presumably a slightly... I mean, I don't want to sp- stereotype, but it sounds like a slightly nerdier maybe guy. Hang on. So they're up for the same role? Apparently. That seems... One of those things is not like the other. Well, they're both... Actually, I can see them both playing the same kind of parts. Like awkward and a bit out there. I guess. You know? I guess. Oh, yeah. It just shows that they haven't made the costumes yet and don't care if they're the right size. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. I guess they both... Michael Sarah has much more of a nervous energy. Have you seen this, <laughs> have you seen this meme on Twitter about Michael Sarah? Or just loads of people are doing jokes about Michael Sarah as if he's the weakest person in the world. Like Michael Sarah's just broken his thumb reading this tweet. That yeah, I see <laughs> that sort of thing. Aww. It's quite. I feel really sorry for him, poor guy, poor millionaire guy. There you go. Um, so, so that's intriguing. intriguing yeah, news. I think I think okay. this one's shaping up to be really interesting. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. But the idea of a, com- a combination of the Wizarding World and sort of jazz age New York is one I am totally down with and, written, and excited about seeing. Written by J.K. Rowling herself, of as course. In the screenplay yes. is written by J.K. Rowling. It is. Yeah, this is the first time she's done that. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, right, so now we're going to go segue seamlessly back into the live podcast. Uh, it, 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 almost as if this bit never happened. Uh, so listen out for us being Nostradamus and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I will say, uh, Ali Plum, who edits the podcast, has uh, told me to tell you that there is going to be some slight sound issues coming up later in the podcast. It's a live podcast. There wasn't a lot we could do about that. The microphones did what the microphones did. Uh, so do be aware of some crackling later on. We apologize, obviously, profusely. And also when Corin Hardy, the director of uh, La Hallow takes the stage. He's one of our guests on the podcast. Uh, he's also the director of the uh, forthcoming Crow remake. And at one point he showed us, just to show, to establish his Crow credentials, his credentials, he he shows us some pictures. And us being idiots don't explain what the pictures were. So they are pictures of him when he was 17, dressed eerily as the Crow. And he yeah, just, very impressive. It, really impressive. So that's what we were looking at. Anything else? I think that's it. I think that's it. Uh, We still haven't seen Minions, so we won't be reviewing that. But do check the Empire website for the uh, review. Back to the live podcast. And that was amazing. Oh my God, I can't believe that Amazing movie news. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, which is interesting. Vin Diesel. We like Vin Diesel, don't we? Yeah, that's it. proud. I mean, good to see the Diesel family have made it all the way up. 
he's going to be Kojak. Yes. Yes. Which basically, to me, just feels like someone has gone, who's bald? Who's bald? <laughs> For somebody who doesn't know what a Kojak is, <laughs> what's a Kojak? Is it a bear? What, what's a bear? What it, is Kojak? Uh, well, that, that would be a Kodiak right. bear, of course, right. who we all remember from Anchorman. And, and nature, also. Um, so, so Kojak was a detective. He was a lieutenant at Kojak. Uh, he was played by Telly Savalas uh, originally. His big gimmick was sucking on a lollipop while looking tough and manly and bold. Especially bold. Was he always in the process of giving up smoking? Was that why he had the, <laughs> the lollipop? Well, nowadays he'll presumably be vaping in that sense. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to update it, let's update it. You know? Did Kojak ever drive a car through a building into another building? <laughs> he I will think now. he might have done. I mean, he might now, yeah. you know, presumably. Almost certainly. And, and this is a 70s, 80s thing, you know, it's a big 70s. deal, 70s. 70s, okay. yeah, it was big in the 70s, and you do hear, like, it's the kind of thing that gets a lot of pop culture references in comedies even now. So it's not an impossible reach to imagine that there's still kind of a... Basically, all they're looking for nowadays is name recognition, isn't it? And there's mm-hmm. still name recognition, kind of, for Kojak. I've never seen an episode, I don't think, but I still kind of know what it is. <laughs> I've seen it on TV and gone, all oh, right, kept flicking, you know, it's, but it's there. And you've missed an absolute... Is it good? I've never no, really it's that not good. It's, <laughs> it's no Columbo, that's for sure. Well, what that's is, Chris, what is? Do you want to see Vin Diesel Get me started on Columbo, I'll be here all day. What? Do I want to see Vin Diesel as Columbo? No. No. No! No! So, no. Mark Ruffalo is Columbo, we all know this. Yes, Mark Ruffalo is an awesome Columbo, uh, if it ever gets made. Um, you know, unless, of course, they just can somehow resurrect Peter Falk. Uh, if anyone can look into that like, technology, that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, so, Vin Diesel as Kojak, we're all on board with that. Everyone's excited about that. Everyone's happy. Let's have a show of hands. Who wants to see Vin Diesel as Kojak? Absolutely nobody. <laughs> Three people. All right. I would have loved to have seen Telly Savalas as Groot. <laughs> that would be an awful lot cooler. Has anyone seen this thing where Telly Cephalus, there's this thing you can go on YouTube, where there was a documentary made in the 70s where Telly Cephalus toured Birmingham. I love Telly Cephalus. And there's another thing as well. And Is he driving Brum whilst he's doing it? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> So basically, Telly Savalas was like, okay, yeah, sure, we're going to do what? Okay, do I have to set foot inside the city? <laughs> no, I'm on board. Um, Little known fact, he's actually from Wolverhampton. Is he? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, he's from Dudley, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's also a great thing. Go on YouTube after this and look up <laughs> when Lee Marvin was over in uh, England shooting, boo, England, uh, whenever he was over shooting uh, The Dirty Dozen. He did this really weird Lee Marvin's Guide to Swing in London as well. So it's on the Dirty Dozen DVD slash Blu-ray. Uh, but go and check it out because it's, it's proper weird. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, movie news. We love movie news, don't sure, we? Sure, yeah. Uh, who's been to Comic-Con? We have two, three people, maybe. Two, three people. Okay. We've also been. We've been, we've been. And we're going to go this year as well. Uh, I'm not for the first time in a while. But uh, it's been announced this week that uh, Sony... Paramount and Marvel are not going to Comic-Con this year. They don't have anything to any of their wares to show, and they've decided it's not worth the point uh, showing their wares at Comic-Con. So is this the beginning of the end for the world's biggest geek film festival, which is essentially what it's become? Yes. <laughs> Phil's in immediately. <laughs> Phil's going for the no, first I time. No, I don't know. Phil's yeah, I'm, taking, I'm struggling not to take this personally, because I literally registered on Wednesday. And then yeah. on Thursday, all the major studios pulled out. It's like, what am I going to do? Turn up with Werner Herzog and make a documentary about it. Actually, uh, I, would, I would love to see the Werner Herzog documentary yeah, on Comic-Con. Yeah. That would be fascinating. Burden of, like, geek dreams. I don't know. Well, Paramount don't really have anything to show off, do they? 
Um, and it's going to be no, that's it's, not it's, true. That's really in terms of in terms no, of. I don't mean they don't have any films. Properties. I just mean that they don't have the properties yeah. that you take to Comic Con. They're, yeah. they're, they're well, between they've, Transformers. You've got Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation. You could have Tom Cruise cling to something or climb up someone or you know, <laughs> whatever he does. Um, you could have or yeah. he could like shove a, a lightsaber down his pants. He likes doing exciting, dangerous things. They also have the monster trucks. And uh, the Scout's Guide to the Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse, which I'm sure everyone's desperate to see. So as I was saying, they've got loads of things that they should be taking to Comic-Con, but yeah. they just for some reason decided not to. Well, but, I, I mean, in fairness, we've had studios sit it out before. We've even had Marvel sit it out before. And I think it, it often does come down to timing of what they have to show, how comfortable they are about showing it. And also, like, it costs a lot of money to get all your people in there and hide Tom Hiddleston in a room for two days until <laughs> Which he can genuinely appear happened. as Loki. Yeah, he, he had to literally couldn't leave his room until he can appear as Loki and amaze us all. Um, so, you know, there's, there, it does cost a lot of money, I guess, and you've got to, ha- you've got to be sure it's going to kind of pay yeah. for itself. I think. They reckon it's like $200,000 or something yeah, that's to, probably about to, right. to get down there. Do you think Sony would reveal Spider-Man again at Comic-Con? Reveal him again. <laughs> so relax, you just hold your hand over your mouth. You're like Bane. Do you think so, I'm very excited. Now it's not the time to reveal Spider-Man. That comes later. Um, do you think that? Do I think they'd reveal Spider-Man Comic-Con? Yeah. I don't know. I don't well, think, no. Uh, presumably they don't nice. think they're going to. Mm. Presumably they, they, they're not sure they're going to have the guy, whoever he may be. It wouldn't be a case of once bitten, twice shy. Well, they <laughs> didn't, but they didn't. <laughs> Unintentional pun number one. <laughs> Don't like, applaud that. I know it was just two people, but don't even. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't even unveiled at Comic Con last time, was he? He was unveiled in the summer of Sony in, in Cancun. Yes, he was. Andrew Garfield oh, was unveiled. Right. I did. It was, I was at uh, Sony do this thing every year where they fly. Uh, it's a real hardship. They fly a bunch of journalists to Cancun. <laughs> and I drew the, the short Edinburgh straw. of Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> I Hang was on, there. Chris, you drew the short straw like a lot of years in a row. I mean, well, it was yeah. it was tough. It was you. just a bunch of short straws in my hand, and I just kept drawing. Oh, guys, well, I guess I better go to Cancun then. And I remember this very distinctly because Andrew Garfield, we did social network uh, roundtables during the day, uh, and uh, he was paired with Justin Timberlake, and all the journalists around the table, except for one of course, uh, just ignored Andrew Garfield and asked questions of Justin Timberlake. Like who's this nobody with Andrew uh, with Justin Timberlake, and then about six hours later he was Spider Man. <laughs> you just kind of feel, oh well, yeah, well, there you go. You should maybe not treat everyone like dirt. Uh, but I remember he was uh, he was unveiled in front of the the press assembled at this hotel in Cancun, and uh, Muggins here yelled out, Spider Man's British, like that. <laughs> In truth, I may even have gone higher. Spider-Man's British! <laughs> Were you fair enough? A real high moment. And he kind of looked uncomfortably in my direction, like, which idiot said that? Uh, <laughs> but but now we're best we're... of friends. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, it may be the beginning of the end. There are options nowadays. Disney has its own D23 event. There are other Comic-Cons apart from San Diego. More has been happening at New York Comic-Con the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's still geek mecca, I think. so. Can you get the entire cast of Captain America Civil War into Hall H? <laughs> <laughs> if, they, if they got all the Days of Future past... Maybe like, that was know. the problem. They were like, well, we'll have one in, one out. No, Put the only queue there. We'll... But they couldn't get the helicarrier into the building <laughs> just to drop them all off and then it explodes. It costs a lot of money. It does cost a lot of money to kill everyone at Comic-Con. Um, can I ask the man, can I ask the guy that's been before, is it, did you have fun? <laughs> His answer was yes. 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 Good fun. Good. Oh, good. Okay, good. Speaking of good fun, we may have some good fun segue in 2018. Is that right? 
for the uh, so-called Indiana Jones 5? They'd have to make a fourth one first, but yeah. <laughs> Fine. Apparently they're going to make a fifth Indiana Jones film. So uh, apparently Lucasfilm have, uh, there's an internal memo going around at Lucasfilm that uh, says, please clean your mugs at the end of the day. <laughs> and also, we're going to make a new Indiana Jones film. And that's pretty much it. And, you know, yeah. and it's going to come uh, out. Yeah, quarter yeah. four, yeah. 2018. Quarter to four. <laughs> <laughs> In 2018. Yeah. So, you know, they don't say which day, but that's fine. It's the way Indy rolls. Okay. Of course, we don't know whether Steven Spielberg is going to direct this. No idea. Or whether Max Spielberg is going to direct this, or, you know, a Spielberg cousin, uh, or whether this is going to be Harrison Ford or Chris Pratt. Now we're here. Um, we're always, you know, we're always, uh, Ali's always going, don't do a show of hands on, a, on a, what is essentially a radio show, but I'm going to do a show of hands. Harrison Ford, if you want to see Harrison Ford be Indiana Jones, raise your hands. Ooh. You want to see Chris Pratt be Indiana Jones? Raise your hands. Oh, the, the red peppers have won it. Sorry. If you want to see Phil DeSemney be Indiana Jones, raise your hands. Everyone's put their hand up. Four, five. One guy put both feet up as well. I've never seen a configuration like that before. That's amazing. So yeah, what do we think about that, guys? When you get the IP for Indiana Jones, you can't just let it sit there and be respected. Uh, you, you've got to, you've got to make another movie. So, yeah, it's not a surprise. I think the trouble is, is that we have seen this year so many. We, we almost could count them up: rejuvenations and reboots, Jurassic World, Terminator Five. Like, is there a, is there a breaking point for the rejig, uh, as I'm going to call it, because I just don't like the word reboot. I just feel like, have we reached a point, or will Indy be accepted as warmly as Jurassic World was? It probably will. Yeah, I suppose so. I imagine the colossal success of Jurassic World has probably given a lot of confidence yeah. Yeah. to this project in particular. And if you drop a Pratt on it, then... <laughs> Boom. What was the... What was the retweeted the, the, the cover of American GQ, was it? Oh, yeah, Jurassic the, Pratt. The <laughs> Jurassic Pratt. <laughs> I was like, yeah, never going to be, never going to be the front cover of UKGQ, that one. Two, two countries separated by a common language there, I think. I know. I'm just waiting for an actor to come uh, from, uh, from America called Bert Bellend. That's going to be <laughs> massive, <laughs> massive Bellend. Jurassic uh, World. Apologies to the young boy in the front row. He taught me that word earlier. He taught, he taught us that word earlier. <laughs> we knew that word already. Right, what else is on my newsometer here? Julia Stiles in Bourne. Oh, that sounds interesting. Uh, what's happening there? Speaking of rejigs. <laughs> yeah, yeah here's another one. Born again. Well, maybe it's an unjig. They tried to rejig it. That didn't work. Yeah. Unjig. And so they're they're now de-jigging it, yes. if you, you will. You guys know about jigs, don't you? <laughs> we we've been struggling with this one. We've talked about it a bit. We don't really kind of. I, I think we understand what's happening with the Bourne thing. Yeah. There's like two Bourne universes happening kind of in parallel. It's yes. trousers of time. I think that the, the, the Bourne legacy universe has collapsed in on itself. <laughs> like Stephen Hawking Consuming style. everyone involved. Yeah, I think so. Uh, well, but the Bourne, yeah. what are you calling it? The Bourne identity. Uh, identity yeah. uh, Paul Greengrass, Matt Damon one is now obviously on the launch pad at Universal. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, well, strangely, I interviewed Judith Stars for some for a horror film the other a couple of weeks ago and asked her about it, and she was she was a bit circumspect. I guess she was in early talks for this, but she's back as that character, and she she, she mentioned <laughs> guys that who could forget that character. <laughs> First name that, second name character. Oh God. <laughs> Yeah, what a top professional. Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I would She's be embarrassed if I knew that character's name. What was her name? Nikki. 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 Yes, she's back as Nikki, but she, she, she mentioned that she's actually supposed to have died in the first film, and they shot a scene where her character had her neck broken, 
and that was the end of her, but they obviously didn't use it, which is good for her, because she's gone on and done, you know, increasingly large roles in each of the films since then. So, yeah, mm. yeah I think it's... I, this is a film I'm quite excited to see. Really. I am too, yeah. uh, uh, despite what I just said. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually really excited about this one. <laughs> in Greengrass We yeah. Trust. Yeah. In Greengrass We Trust, yeah. Yeah, sometimes you hear, you know, filmmakers say, I wouldn't do it until the story's right, and then they make, like, more cop too. Um, and sometimes they say it and you think... the script wasn't right with the first one. <laughs> Jurassic Blart. <laughs> Bert Bellend is Paul Blart. The thing is about this one working is, as you say, how many times has Matt Damon been asked, when are you going to do another board movie? Mm. When, and he always says, when the script's right and when Greengrass is on board. And guess what? The script must be right and Greengrass is on board. So he's held his word. There's no lie about this one. Why wouldn't there be another one? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Uh, and that is all the movie news we can shake out of our very paltry movie news tree uh, for the time being. But there'll be more movie news maybe by the time you listen to it. Or then again, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, but we'll see. But anyway, our first guest is here. I can see him uh, at the side of the stage. So uh, Phil and I are going to disappear. Helen and Ali are going to move here and interview the guest. I'll give him a big intro. Uh, he's a brilliant Irish actor. He shot the fame on the small screen in Misfits. And he's translated seamlessly to the silver screen with uh, roles in the likes of Killing Bono, The Mortal Instruments, City of Bones, Jerry Bomb, and the forthcoming Geostorm in which Jerry Butler punches weather. Um, <laughs> he could be seen uh, here in the horror film The Messenger. Please welcome the brilliant, the one and only, Robert Sheehan! Now, before we get started, I must warn you, I've only been up for about 26 minutes. <laughs> no, I'm not fully with it. And now, I'm, and now I'm in a room full of people all staring at me. It's very strange. Were you at the Cayley last night? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. How was it? It was great, but I didn't get to, I didn't get to dance much uh, because I was, I was too busy in the other room, sort of fannying about. And, uh, and then I, I came rambling in at the end of the Cayley and did a few of these with a few people, and then they... they Hoofed us all back out. Just subtitles for people listening. That was an amazing elbow jig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm also, I'm, I'm naked. <laughs> well, there goes my second question. <laughs> why, why, why are you naked? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. When I last saw you, you won't remember me because I'm a bit of a creep, but you at the Empire Awards. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> lots of this as well. Again. There's, lots of, yeah, there's lots of elbows and winking elbow language of delight. It was wonderful. As the great Patrick Kavanaugh once said. I had to, I think, walk over several passed out women who'd seen you and just lost it. <laughs> They're just gone. Your fans, I think, are quite devoted, I'd say. Yeah, What's I had the... a lot of chloroform. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't, couldn't help myself. <laughs> Uh, sorry, carrying on. Le- legal, legal subnotes. Just, just love. What's the weirdest thing a fan's ever done? Walked up to you in the street and said, "Hello," and then passed out. One time, uh, a, a lady d- uh, did a sort of an oil painting of me, and then she sent it to my agent. And uh, but the, <laughs> the funniest thing was that she'd she'd done the teeth and the eyes like sort of glow in the dark. So she'd <laughs> she'd done a letter saying. Oh, and also bring it to a darkened room and check out. Check out. I've been experimenting with glow-in-the-dark paints. And so, sure enough, we were there in my agent's office trying to 
trying to like darken the room so we could check out like how how glowing my teeth would be on this, on this painting. That's one thing you want your fan to be saying, like yeah. the most devoted fan ever, to begin a sentence with, "I've been experimenting." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's alarm bells straight away. Do, do they have a name? Is it she fans or? I was well, thinking Shiites, maybe. Shiites. <laughs> maybe a little I've, bit. I've been, I've been told there's a Shehab. Shehab. <laughs> okay. So is that the ones that get a little bit too intense and need which, to maybe take it back a notch? You know, which which has its sort of you know base in in let's face it, drug addiction. You know, and it's you know this is sort of that kind of uh, connotation. But uh, yeah, they're lo- they're you're lovely usually. Uh, we were doing the road within actually, and. We were out in a place called Santa Clarita, which is about an hour and a half from Los Angeles, in the middle of nowhere. And these, we were like just just in a car park at about midnight, and um, there was very little evidence that we were that we were actually there. You know, there was a few trucks and a few sort of trailers and things, and about uh, four or five girls were sort of at the edge of the car park, kind of doing this kind of thing. And me and um, Dev Patel were sat there, and we were like. Are those, are they, those people lost or something? It's like, what are they doing? There was nothing for miles, you know, it's this weird sort of stretch of highway, you know. And um, it turned out that they had called, the, like, the city and, and asked where would, there would be any filming or, or any sort of roadblocks or any traffic interruptions. And then they'd gone around and checked each one in the greater LA area wow. to figure out where we were. Or just to paint you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, then she painted me, literally painted me in the trailer. So. <laughs> and yeah, that's why times. you're naked. <laughs> ah, full circle. But yeah, so that was, that was a bit strange. Yeah, they were, they were sort of mortal instruments, I think, fans. Speaking of which, mm. now on TV, it seems. Yeah, is it now on TV? Or well, not now. Headed too, I think. Yeah, it's on its way. Oh, cool. Yes, how, how does that make you feel? It's not... I think it's probably the best thing for everyone, you know what I mean? <laughs> Books are like five or six books, I think, in the series, and she's still writing them, the, the author. So there's loads and loads and loads of story in there. Like, they tried to cover the first book. I don't know if, you, if, you, if any of you are familiar with uh, the Mortal in- Instruments Young Adult series. It's, it's like six books strong, and it's very, very popular in North America. So I was in a film that adapted the first book. And... Um, it just tried to get everything into the first film, you know what I mean? And also the, the characters in the, first, in, the, in the books are 15 and 16, you know, so obviously they, they cast older so that they can incorporate the whole love story thing. So I think the TV series, as far as I know, will be a bit more honest to the books in that sense. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. you were cast as the geeky best friend, which, yeah. you know, is pushing it a wee bit, surely. You <laughs> I had glasses, though. You did have glasses. I did. <laughs> You know, you put glasses on a guy in a, in a movie and he's, he's the geekish he's the friend. Geeky friend. Yeah. That's how it works. Yeah. Um, tell us, though, about The Messenger, because that's actually what's here at the festival. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and so it's a sort of a... You see dead people, mm-hmm. sort of a... There's a supernatural element, I suppose, in that sense, where I play a, a young man from the north of England who is being plagued by the recently dead, people who died quite violently and unexpectedly, and they're sort of coming to my character and going, please, please, could you just pass on this message to my loved ones? And he's like, he's like oh, for fuck's sake, this just happens. <laughs> time and time again, he kind of just, it's like a, it's sort of a humdrum reality for him. But because of it, because of the sort of gift or curse, whatever way you want to look at it, uh, it's sort of, he's become this complete loner and, you know, alcoholic and um, 
is just completely kind of cut off from society and reality. It's completely embraced this thing about himself. He's never questioned it. It's just something that's happened to him all his life. So the film starts off where he fixates on this one particular case um, where uh, this, this, this character is, is asking him to pass on a message to his, his bereaved wife. And, um, and as that case unfolds, we sort of jump back in time and show him as a boy and, and something, a traumatic event in his past. Um, so it's, it's an interesting script and the whole supernatural element is always somewhat left hanging in the air. You don't quite know if, if this is really happening to him or if it's a very complex delusion that he's kind of built up for himself over the years. Because he's not the most stable, it's probably fair to say. Very unstable. <laughs> I tend to be drawn to those types of parts, <laughs> or get cast in those types of parts. If this yeah. was made in America, it would be a Nicholas Sparks novel, and it would be incredibly romantic. <laughs> <laughs> incredibly. Yeah, I can yeah see there's it. very little romance, unfortunately, in our one. It's mainly death and pain. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, can we just cast your mind back to the Empire Awards? Um, <laughs> All the passed out women everywhere. Yeah, of course. Yeah. What is it? What is it like from the other side? You know, is it? Is that just compliment us here? But uh, is Empire Awards as much fun as it looks yeah, from it the is, other yeah, side? Yeah, it's actually the only awards that I've ever been to that's any fun. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's absolutely true. And the reason is there are no cameras. It's not being filmed. Like most award ceremonies, if you're sat in the audience uh, and you're like by the edge, a guy with a camera comes running down the aisle and sticks a camera in your face every now and again. You kind of have to just pretend he's not there and sort of act normal and interested. You know? it's, it's such a contrivance, the whole thing, whereas the Empire is just a fancy piss-up. But it's, yeah, it's great fun. It's really good fun. And it's like, it's one of those things where there's lots and lots of famous people there. And I, I have that famous person voice in me where I'm going oh you're, you're talking to that famous person I find it very difficult to quiet that voice but as the, you know the piss up helps <laughs> yeah. um, speaking of famous people you've worked with Rupert Grint twice mm -hmm. on uh, Moonwalkers and Cherry Bomb yeah. have you seen his ice cream van I haven't but he's got a, apparently he's got a fleet of them he has he has yeah. a fleet of ice cream vans <laughs> How is yeah. this a fact? I don't know. I mean, it sounds like suspect behaviour. Let's be honest. Yeah, it really does. But, I mean, in fairness, but, um, like he's, he's Rupert Grint, he doesn't need ice cream vans to get the kids. He also, he doesn't. He doesn't. So you've seen his fleet, then? You've seen? I haven't. No, but he never drives them. He just has them. He just he has them like. They're like a strange collection that he has. Just a convoy. Yeah, yeah. I've never, I've never seen his, uh, his, his ice cream vans, but they're in the countryside in England. Wow. Roaming, free, wild. <laughs> just, yeah, in a field somewhere, yeah. Just that eerie, eerie ringing bell. Uh, have you, when was the last time you were talking about that voice in your head? You were fully starstruck. Recently, I was in Los Angeles and uh, I, was, I was hanging out with Joel Edgerton. You know Joel Edgerton? Mm -hmm. Of the movie Warrior, Animal Kingdom, brilliant actor, you know, Australian guy, and, and I had the voice very much, <laughs> and I think, uh, like I was, you know, chatting away, but I think I kind of overperformed a bit, you know, by over overcompensating, trying to quiet the voice. Yes. Yeah, so he was the last one. You've got some really interesting upcoming projects, you've got your, dire uh, not direct, you're producing 
as well as acting I yep. think, in mm -hmm. uh, Jet Trash, is that Jet right? Jet Trash, yeah. So is that coming up fairly soon? It is, it is. It's coming up, it's coming up. It's finished. It's it's completely finished. So uh, so now, uh, you know, in the, in the world of independent film, once it's finished, they're now going to market it out and seek distribution. Mm -hmm. So that's the stage we're at. All right. But it's great, you know. It's We shot for, for four weeks in Goa, in India. Nice. And then we came back to London. We shot for four days. So, we, you know, it was... It was Micro budget, mega quick, a bit like the messenger, but um, you know we got a lot for our money because the pound goes quite far in India, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know it's just extraordinarily beautiful, and it's kind of it's a kind of um, a thriller about these two best friends who who sort of escape to India, and then you sort of go back in time and realise why they had to make their escape in the first place. But it, yeah, that was an extraordinary experience. It was just a brilliant experience it was magnificent you know? so more of that coming you think I think so okay. yeah, yeah and then at the other end of the spectrum I guess Geostorm sounds like a much bigger I'm also producing that yes <laughs> yes <laughs> no. I heard that too. and you, are you wearing glasses in that one no glasses but I, I'm, I'm a space cockney in that one <laughs> <laughs> now they're calling it Geostorm when they could easily have called it space cockney yeah yeah <laughs> I mean I kept I kept you know suggesting that they change the title, but they wouldn't listen to it. Tell me everything about Space Cockney. Uh, wh <laughs> who is he? What does he do? How does he I feel? I hope when I Empire covers the movie now, they're going to cover it as Space Cockney. Uh, so yes, yeah, so Space Cockney is about... <laughs> um, it's Well, my character is a Space Cockney. He's a, he's a computer programmer who, who essentially lives on this naturalised space station in the not-too-distant future which essentially uh, uh, keeps control over an anti-weather satellite net, this complex net that exists around the globe, essentially to prevent weather disasters from happening. Because, you know, we've, we've essentially fucked up the Earth so much in the, in the not-too-distant future that our greatest threat has become, you guessed it, the weather. <laughs> ba, ba, ba. Yeah. So then Jerry Butler has to come to the spaceship and save the day. Save the day, excellent. That's really good news. <laughs> I'm so glad he does that. Thank God. We don't have too much longer, but I wanted to ask you about uh, your presence on Twitter. That's, that's, that's where I see you most. Oh, really? Uh, that and obviously at um, traffic stops uh, in the Los Angeles area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not normally yeah. Where, where I'm at. Um, you only follow ten people. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really bad at the whole Twitter... Thing, you know, I'm very, I'm weirdly antisocial on Twitter, mm -hmm. which goes against the whole nature of the platform. I'm sure. I was just wondering who who makes the cut. Like of those ten, was it like uh, I suppose I'll let I'll let the Pope in. Yeah, he can come <laughs> in. I kept following and then unfollowing people. That was the thing. I, like, I've I've a friend Mark who's a comedian in in LA, and I followed him, but he just tweets so much and such crap all the time. <laughs> I was just like, I'm just, I can't be bothered reading your stream. So I just unfollowed him. So that's what usually happens, you mm -hmm. know. Like, again, I'm sorry to say, John Ronson, who I'm a big fan of, big fan of his books and his, and his, his Guardian articles and stuff. But I followed him on Twitter, and again, it's just crap. It's like, <laughs> quiet, John Ronson, you know what I mean? <laughs> if, we're, you know, if we want to know where you're speaking next, we can go to your website. That's fine, you know. Um, and there wasn't any like, interesting information past that, you know. Sorry, John. Uh, so I unfollowed him as well. I saw on Twitter that you went to see Eddie Izzard. Eddie Izzard, he, he played the Hollywood Bowl recently. It was, it was extraordinary because... I mean, it must have been 11 or 12,000 people, you know. Almost as many people here today, actually. I know, <laughs> almost. 
Uh, I feel like Eddie actually today on stage. And then you, you, you're sort of kind of filing in, getting into your seat, and you just think, there's no way one guy can come out here and sort of command this this gigantic amphitheater. But sure enough, he came out and sort of said something about the bowl or Hollywood bowl, and then just went, oh, human sacrifice. What, what's all that about? <laughs> What a great opening line. (laughs) He was doing stand-up about kings from the dark ages of of England. You know, back from from the year 1040 to 1352 or whatever. That that period of history just interested him. So he was doing stand-up about Richard the Lionheart and then Oliver Cromwell and stuff like... In L.A., in the Hollywood Bowl. And, and, just think, How? and he was making it funny. And you just think, that's extraordinary. And he did this whole thing as well. Not to, not to give you too many spoilers. You should see the show if it comes your way. But um, he did this whole thing about Martin Luther, the, the guy who started Protestantism, basically, um, who famously nailed 99 documents to the, to the door of a church, you know, in sort of a separatist proclamation or whatever. But he, did, he does a whole bit where he's... Where he's nailing the <laughs> the nailing, he's going. He's like, oh, it's a bit of a windy day, okay? Eins, eins, drei, scheiße. And he's like doing the whole. Thing. It was so so funny. And, and yeah, wonderful stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you so Pleasure, much, Pleasure. kids. Thanks for listening. Go and have some. Right. Time to talk about this week's reviews. Uh, the big review, uh, the big film of the week, Minions. There's a Minions fan right here in the front row with a Minions cap and everything. We haven't seen it yet. They wouldn't show it to us because of embargoes. So we might put a review of that into the finished podcast. So go listen to that as well. Uh, Eli Roth's Knock Knock, his return to movie making after a few years away. Uh, weirdly enough, it will come out after his proper return to movie making, which was Green Inferno, which played here last year, but hasn't come out yet. Uh, but you know, this one he made in about three weeks, and that's going to come out uh, next week. That hasn't been screened to us either, but we did see the Sundance, or rather Damon Wise saw the Sundance, and he thought it was fantastic and gave it four stars. So that's Eli Roth's Knock Knock with Keanu Reeves. Uh, but the films we have seen, because we have seen some films. <laughs> My God. Um, <laughs> let's start with uh, Slow West. Yeah. Shall we? Phil Cat. Yes. Talk to me about talk to me about Slow West. <laughs> talk, talk, me, about talk, talk me about Slow West. Talk to you. Well, Slow West is the feature debut of John McClane, the The diehard sh- guy. <laughs> He's fucking <laughs> right. <laughs> I hadn't even twigged. My word. He's given up being a Tampa terrorist. Different spelling, is it? Different spelling. Different, different spelling. spelling. Different right. guy, believe it or not, as opposed to the fictional guy from Die Hard. It's John McClane, who's uh, the lead singer of uh, the Beta Band, and this is his first movie. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you if you can think of a lot of other directors who've come from musical backgrounds to direct films, uh, because he looks like a natural to me. He's made, he directed some of the Beta Band's music videos. He's got Robbie Ryan... Um, as his DP, who's a very experienced seasoned guy, and it's a beautiful visual film, this. Um, very vibrant, bright landscapes. It's set in Colorado in 18, 1870, and it's a story about Cody... Cody... I cannot Smith say his McPhee. name. Smith Helen, you say his name. Cody Smith-McPhee. That guy. Cody Smith-McPhee, <laughs> travelling from the Scottish Highlands to try and find his love, the love of his life, who's moved to... Uh, Colorado to the frontier of, of the American West. She's got any number of bounty hunters after her. If you imagine a world where virtually everyone is Boba Fett, 
That is, that is where this is set. Everybody <laughs> is carrying an eye and everybody wants the bounty on her and her dad's head. So Cody Smith-McPhee embarks on this journey across probably the most lawless part of America. Um, and as the man that was in the road, I think you would have thought he'd have learned his lesson but by now in terms of that sort of road trip. But he's got Michael Fassbender along to um, help him out, I guess. Mm. And I thought this was a really... I really enjoyed this film. Um, I thought... I, it's, I'd love Westerns for a start. And it's nice to see Westerns making a bit of a resurgence with, you know, obviously Tarantino's got The Hateful Eight and Django and there's, there's the sort of India end um, of the spectrum with films like... At the Homesman and Meek's Cut-Off. And this has probably got a bit more in common with the latter than the former. It's not a showy film, mm. but it's a very, very assured uh, film with some really interesting character moments. It's got Ben Mendelsohn, which automatically elevates any movie by about 40%. And it, as I say, it's beautiful, set against snowy backdrop. It's a sort of a, a sort of vision of the West that you don't see, you don't see that often, especially in the sort of colour era. So we gave it four stars. And uh, I thought it was really, really good. I'd, I'd agree with that. Ben Mendelsohn, by the way, wears essentially Johnny Depp's coat from Dead Man. You know, the big bearskin kind of coat. And it just it, visually, it just looks really good. And, and when Cody Smith-McPhee first appears on screen, he just looks so vulnerable. I mean, he's just because he's like a he's meant to be a 16-year-old wealthy pampered kid who has come across the ocean away from everything he knows in search of this girl. And you're just, I spent the entire te- film terrified for him. I spelt, <laughs> spent the entire time thinking, oh God, will somebody not look after him? Look at him, he's so little. Um, it's, it, it, but you're just worried for him because he's, he's a sweet, innocent in a world that does not reward those, those virtues. He's like, he's like a puppy in a bear pit, He really. is a puppy in and, a bear and, pit. And Fassbender is, you don't know if Fassbender's one of the bears or, and it's an interesting performance as well. Yeah. And there's an interesting dynamic that shapes between them. Very much And so. one of the things I liked about it was that they both have interesting arcs, but yes. they're very subtle. And, and, and as they go on this journey, um, you kind of the, 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 the dynamic keeps shifting yes. towards this really, really powerful, superb final sequence. There is, yeah, the, the, the last act of this film is amazing, and there, there are moments of black comedy here that will break your heart. I mean, some of it, there are some really, really funny moments that are also really upsetting. And, and I think I thought that was brilliantly handled. I'd never seen anything quite like the end of this film. Yeah, if you're an Empire Podcast fan, you'd, you'd like those things. So. Yeah. <laughs> what upsetting dark things. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd be a very high four, I think, on this, actually. A high four? Yeah. Mm. No, that's a recommendation. Boarding on a five. So we give uh, four stars in. Next up is Everly, which is an action thriller starring Salma Hayek. Hell's Bells. This is a film from Joe Lynch, who, who directed Knights of Bad Aston, which we saw at Comic-Con about four years ago, and which, to my knowledge, has never come out in this country. Um, and this also feels like an interesting idea that didn't quite work out for him. Uh, so it's, it's essentially a sort of a one-apartment drama. There's a little bit of action in the hole, but basically it's, it's all set in this one space. And she is a prostitute who has been basically gotten herself into trouble with the big crime boss in the area, is basically targeted for death. And uh, the crime boss is also threatening her daughter who lives with her mother. And that's the part she has a problem with. She's like, fair enough, do what you want to me, but like, let's leave the family out of this. Um, and basically, it, it sort of evolves into her kind of fighting her way through all of his minions uh, to try and protect her family. Not those minions, by the way. Not those minions. <laughs> That's a different Those film. minions are fine. They are okay. Although not in the minions movie where they all die horribly. Oh my <laughs> I'm guessing I haven't seen it, obviously. Yeah, obviously. So yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's an interesting way of, you know, finding something fairly low budget and doing quite 
He's he's clearly aiming for a Tarantino-esque kind of cool action. There's a there's you know all of those kind of blackly comic but very violent directors. There's like little bits of all of that in there. Um, it doesn't quite work out. It's not quite well enough directed. The action beats aren't all. They really need to be spot on. I think it's some people, sometimes people underestimate how hard it is to film an action sequence really beautifully, and so few directors can do it. And I think on this evidence, Joe Lynch hasn't quite nailed it yet. But he's got some really interesting ideas. Like there's a character that turns up halfway through. This isn't a massive spoiler. There's a guy called the Sadist who turns up and who is a, a big threat. And it is, it's visually arresting. It's not quite like a bad guy you've seen before. It's a bit twisted. It's a bit funny. It's really, really scary at the same time. That's a really nice mix. So you do get these kind of cool moments, but it doesn't quite add up, I think, the way he wants it to. And Selma Hayek, I thought, was pretty good, looked terrific, um, but she doesn't mm. have a huge amount to work with. This film is also, and I want to make this abundantly clear, incredibly violent. There, oh, yeah. there is blood all over everywhere. There's blood on blood on blood on blood on blood. She also makes a decision in the film to bring her mother and child to the location where she's being bombarded with minions and she has to take them all out. So decisions, maybe one of the worst she's ever made. Yeah. Or anyone has ever and made. And it's it. difficult to really tie yourself to a character, no matter how charming Summer Hike is for you, when she makes a decision that apocalyptically dumb. Yeah. You just think, why? This is super dangerous. You've got like a bullet hole in you. Yeah, bring their kids. <laughs> Actually, Mum, could you come? Because I don't want to really pay attention to him. Great, fine, great. Um, anyway, so admirable to an extent, but mm. a messy. Think, yeah, it's kind of a noble mm. failure for me. Yeah. Like, yeah. I can see what they were getting at, and that's interesting, but it didn't quite get there. Yeah, it's weird. The guy who wrote the review for Empire, uh, Nick, who is not here today, uh, hated this film with a passion. Uh, I think largely because of that decision, mm-hmm. that, that creative decision, the decision yeah, the character it can, makes. Yeah, it can break you. Can't yeah, um, but I, yeah, I, there's a lot to admire in this film. If you like your your one room action drama is quite skeezy and bloody, uh, which you know I kind of do, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like rope, but with more no, not not of rope and more bullets, I guess. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's okay. It's fine. Selma Hayek is. Fantastic. She's great. You know, she's you know one of the world's most beautiful women running around killing people. And that, that ticks your boxes, then by all means go see Everly. But we did give it two stars, and it's very hard to disagree with that at the same time. So mm. two stars in for Everly. Uh, and speaking of two stars, <laughs> it's uh, the return of the once great, sadly, uh, Peter Bogdanovich uh, in the director's chair for the, the farce. She's funny that way. All-star farce. Owen Wilson and Jennifer Aniston and... Will Forte and Imogen Poots, Puta. So yes, this film is by Peter Bogdanovich. It is a farce a la Noises Off. So it's that kind of uh, in one door, out another. Who's that around the corner? He's wearing a tash. He's got a hat on. Someone's sleeping with someone who's sleeping with someone else. But the one's going down the lift, one's going up the lift. Ooh, whoops, where's my drawers? You know, it's that kind of level of, <laughs> you know. It's a bit of a whoopsie-daisy comedy. Uh, it has in its starring cast, yes, Owen Wilson. He plays this theatrical director who, for some reason, gives prostitutes a humongous amount of cash after he sleeps with them so that they never carry on being prostitutes and he feels great about himself and they have loads of cash so that's a plot point Uh, and then this becomes complicated because he has a wife and that wife with him has children and they live a perfectly nice life and he's been doing this for years everywhere where he gets this cash 
Who knows? Who cares? Presumably, he's the best theatre director ever. He and carries can't around move with a suitcase. He has some money in a suitcase. He he's doing very well for himself. Who has thirty thousand dollars in a suitcase? Is anyone here have thirty thousand dollars in a suitcase? Please put your hand up and identify yourself clearly. We'll give you a spot prize in exchange. Yeah, everyone gets a spot prize. Please come and see so, us if you have thirty thousand dollars in a suitcase. Afterwards. That's the basic premise. Jennifer Aniston is a very indiscreet and actually quite funny uh, psychotherapist who casually reveals all of the problems of all her other uh, people that she deals with. It's just so odd. It's so odd. I mean, it's a farce, right? And it's playing on the idea of what farces are. And farces can be brilliant, but they take so much skill and such a light touch. But unfortunately, this is like a farce that is a meta about farces, which itself is farcical. There are moments where Chris and I were watching it together where we were laughing out loud, like really, really laughing. And it was entirely unintentional. Mm. Like, this guy walks in, there's a, there's, a, there's a character in it. Of course there's a character who's a detective, he's a gumshoe, with this big fake tash. At one point he's wearing, like, a, a Jewish, you know, peyote and a hat, and it's just, it's just... There's one point where the lead character, Imogen Poots, Poota, who's, who's there being very charming. Unfortunately, she's doing it in a Brooklyn accent as much as I adore her. Unfortunately, that Brooklyn accent is... Terrible. <laughs> it's, it's a no from me. Uh, absolutely no. With <laughs> all the will in the world. Doesn't it's work. It's unforgiving, isn't it? Because the, the opening shot of the film is a three-minute monologue to camera where she has to maintain the accent all the yeah. way through. And it's I, really... I yeah. But she's in this restaurant and then the person that's going, taking her out on a date is there and then the person that she'd slept with the night before is there and so his... Her, his, his his wife, and then so somebody else that has previously wants to sleep with her or knows that they've slept with her. Risa Fans, by the way, plays a former superhero because of course he does. Yeah, and the, the superhero is called Red Bee Man. Red Bee Man, yeah. And he has the power of bees. Honestly, if this makes sense, the review, it's a miracle. Hang on. But we've got Chris and I watching it, and we actually said to each other at times, Japes. Japes move. Here Japes. comes some more yeah. Japes. It's a Where's lot of, my washboard? There was, so, there was so much whoop, whoop. Boing. Like, it is just <laughs> preposterous. It is preposterous. And at times it works really well. I'll be honest. Sometimes it does work really well. And sometimes you just go, why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you here? Okay, then you're talking. Okay, it's over. Yeah. I think, like, Bogdanovich is just, he's a bit of a hero. I mean, you know, he Last is, Picture yeah. Show and Paper Moon. And, I mean, I know you're a huge fan of Noises Off. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of Noises Off in this. But he's done something. I mean, it's very ambitious to try and make a sort of Lubitsch-style screwball farce. Truly screwball. Mm. Because our sense of humour is not really attuned to that kind of comedy anymore anyway, particularly. And there's a cameo in it that I'm not going to go ahead and spoil, which just kind of sums it up. It's just like, well, what's happening? Yeah, which is a bit of a shame. Uh, She's funny that way. Two stars for that one. And then very, very quickly, because our uh, next guest is right here in the front row. I can see him. There he is, right there, skulking. Very, very quickly then, The Overnight. Hell's Bells. Yes, this is rather better. Uh, as comedies go. Uh, this stars Adam Scott and Taylor Schilling of Orange is the New Black fame um, as a couple who have recently moved to LA from Seattle and they're trying to settle in. They have a young son. They're wondering how they're going to make friends. He's kind of temporarily at least a house husband so he doesn't know how you go out and make friends as an adult and how you meet people but one day at the playground they may meet Jason Schwartzman's character who instantly seems friendly, seems nice, invites them over for dinner that evening with himself and his wife and their son, who has befriended, you know, the, the little kids, both friends. Great. Um, they head over for dinner in this incredibly fancy house, and things start to go a little bit weird. And this is one of these very slow builds where you, you sense that something is off almost immediately, but you don't quite know what it is. And, and things just keep progressing in a way that's never actually implausible but it does 
get more and more uncomfortable to the extent where I was sitting between Phil and Ali as we watched this and at one point both Phil and myself were like and Ali was sitting like this with his t-shirt pulled up over his face so he could block the screen from sight and at one point he made this noise because he was so mortally embarrassed for everyone involved on screen I mean Jason Schwartzman is kind of the guy that you call, you know, if you call, if you want someone to play guilty, like tor- tormented by guilt, you call Colin Farrell, right? If you want to play someone who is, who is trying to be modest and failing utterly, you call Jason Schwartzman. And he is so, so obnoxious yet trying to be nice about it in this that it's unbelievable. He is absolutely incredible. It's hilarious. It is hilarious. This is a film see twice. Like, watch it because it's very, very funny and very... But then watch it a second time and just to watch the audience watching it. Yeah. Because it is that. It's just like, oh my God, that's about to happen. Yeah. Do you remember the scene in Go with um, William Fickner and they go and he does the CK1 thing without... And then they have the dinner and it's gone weird. <laughs> it's like that for an entire movie. The just entire movie. Really, really weird and uncomfortable, yeah. but hilarious. It do is. You, I mean, you do have your head in your hands through most of the movie. It's not a date film. Do not watch with mother. Yeah, no. There are the moments of extreme embarrassment. It's office but it, as, as Helen says, it goes and it goes and it goes. Believable, believable, believable. Utterly unbelievable. Pulls it back. Just to give you a taste of what to expect, there is a scene where it is revealed where one of the characters... One of his hobbies, or her hobbies, is painting anuses. <laughs> a whole studio full of canvases. And this is a film where I buy that. <laughs> yeah. And by the end of it, I don't think it's that weird. And, and, and there is full frontal male nudity. I mean, f- we're pretty sure it's fake. You know, sort of, but it's I'm just, pretty sure it's fake. <laughs> trust me when I say it is fake. For, for reasons that will become clear when you see the film. But, uh, but yeah, just you know, be aware. If you're of a nervous disposition, just don't go near it. But it is hilarious and brilliantly observed. So, so cleverly done. Yep. So we loved it. And if you don't like that full front nudity, then there's always Minions. Which minions. I'm pretty sure doesn't have any full frontal male nudity in it. Although we haven't seen a scene of it. There may be full... Backward minion nudity. Are the minions nude? Under their clothes, yes. Yeah, they are, yes. Okay, good. All right. I just wanted to get that right in my head. Uh, four stars then for the overnight, and that is it for this week's uh, movie reviews. And we're going to do a little bit more musical chairs now because we have uh, our second guest. He's one of the fastest rising directors around. His uh, debut horror film, The Hallow, is uh, playing here at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Next in this plate is a remake of The Crow. Please welcome the wickedly talented one and only Corin Hardy. <laughs> Well, well, well. We meet at last. <laughs> That's the longest, uh, the longest non-meeting for the longest. Yeah, we've been years. dancing around each other for for years. Not literally dancing. That would be really weird. But welcome. How are you? I'm I'm very excited to be here. I feel like um, actually you look look like a band or something. <laughs> I've been sort of listening to you and then not really seeing your faces and sitting there watching us. I mean, you should be doing this. With, TV, shouldn't you? <laughs> oh, yeah, from your mouth to TV executive's ears, man. But uh, I, I think we'd be a bloody terrible band. Uh, there would be, you know, what sort of band do you think we would be looking at us? A skiffle band? We'd probably be a skiffle band. No, we think the other podcast has a Oh, really? Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, but so, how's uh, your. Oh, what's this? What's I brought a little called? extra guest for the podcast. Okay. She's come out just especially, and if anyone's seen the film, she's the, there's a little girl called Cora. 
Oh, wow. So I brought her along to uh, talk as well. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So do you voice Cora? Can we speak directly to Cora? She goes like, scared <laughs> so uh so uh, how's your festival experience been i mean what's it what's it been like for you um i wish i could be here watching more movies because i'd have to go again later on today mm-hmm. and i came late the other night and i've had a um a lovely time so far i mean i i said last night what's been really special being at edinburgh was my first short film butterfly which is a stop motion film i i i finished that and it, it got into Edinburgh in uh, it, 10 or 11 years ago mm-hmm. and it was um, I spent five years locked in a dark room making that on my own um, and then I kind of didn't know if anyone had ever seen the film because it was such an effort and it got into Edinburgh and it was the first sort of uh, you know like audience to sit to see it and to sit in an audience so it was really um special experience it was actually in this room I think and then and then the hallow was in here as well last night so it's, it just feels quite nostalgic and like the special uh, place I should premiere all my films on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you've, you've started a trend now. You've got to keep that rolling. So, yeah. uh, so tell us about the Hello. What was the what was the sort of you know spark of inspiration that got you interested in that? I guess it was um, growing up on on loving Ray Harryhausen movies and monsters and seeing the kind of love put into um, you know great movies with creatures in from like. From Ray Harryhausen to Alien, mm. um, and seeing the kind of quality of everything in the production put together, um, and, and the creatures um, like rendered in such a way. Mm. So I, I, I grew up wanting to be a monster maker and uh, studied uh, and you know, made made kind of horror movies with my friends uh, when I was sort of twelve, and uh, then you know having my mind blown by Evil Dead Two and. This thing, Exorcist, and all these sort of 70s and 80s movies at Spielberg, and then wanting to, you know, do my own movies. So I spent the last 10 years sort of writing five different um, horror movies. The, the Hallow was always wanting to be the, I wanted, always wanted it to be the first one. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try and explore something beyond uh, vampires, zombies, and werewolves, <laughs> as much as I love those things. Um, well, not their romantic leads. They're not even horror characters anymore, <laughs> you know. So. <laughs> yeah, and um, and then uh, so fairy folklore. I, you know, I loved fairy tales when I was a kid, and I was obsessed with the the, the, the pictures in those European seventies uh, fairy tale storybooks. Mm-hmm. Just like look, imagining what was in those trees, and I think it's just I've had this obsession with sort of wanting there to be more out there and wanting to try and put it on the screen and make it feel grounded in reality. So um, uh, yeah, that was a starting point. Like, let's, uh, maybe I want to do a, a modern-day fairy tale, but I didn't want it to be fantastical or, or kind of for children. Yeah. So I wanted it to be the sort of, you know, um, yeah. I, I want it, if, it, if it's going to be scary, you have to sort of identify with it and and, and care for the characters. So um, it was, that was a starting point. And then I, I looked into different mythologies and um, came up with this idea, which I suppose I, I pitched as sort of straw dogs which and pan's labyrinth that idea of being you know the kind of a, a genre kind of set up of a couple in an isolated place yeah. um, with a baby and, and uh, something that the locals believe is in superstition of folklore and mythology but there's a connection to science and nature right. and so lots of practical effects lots of grew uh, because there's been, a, there's, there's been a yeah, there's been, there's been an interesting there's been a move away from 
practical effects in the industry recently. Rick Baker's just retired. Yeah, because he feels that. I just bought Empire on a plane. Reading on. Yeah. Mm. So, so is, is it, are you one of the select group of directors, I guess, who are trying to preserve that and keep that alive? And I definitely am, but I wouldn't want to do it just for nostalgic reasons. And yeah. I just, I, I, I think partly I'm a bit biased because I, I, you know, I loved that and I grew up with it and I wanted to do prosthetics and animatronics and I studied that. And just when I was sort of potentially could have started to go in a career, in it, it, it all ended at, at that point and it was everything CG. But at the same time, you know, that, then I sort of went the other way and went and did my stop motion film, which was maybe just trying to do something pure and didn't have any computers involved. And, and in the meantime, I think things are sort of evening out. And I, and I, I definitely believe in mixing up mm. techniques to, to achieve a, a result that you can't pin down. And I think that's, in the end, they're all just tools in a, a toolbox to be used in different ways. And if you use all practical and nothing else, you probably won't be able to achieve mm. a convincing look on if you go all CG. And I mean, I generally feel that, um, I mean, also I believe in limitations and if you can limit things and then do as much within the limitations, you can get something more exciting than just showing everything. Or, or So it's more the kind of Stan Winston approach, like oh, yeah. agnostic as to how you get it done as long as you get it done kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And actually with the Hallow, it was... I mean, it was sort of like a decision because I think also these days movies, there's a lot you can do in post, so there's not enough time in prep, and it's quite difficult to fight for like just justify, especially when the money isn't really there, and it keep you know you have to constantly be trying to get the money, and you know like you have to get people in, um, in, involved early on, and to do a movie like this, we had you know full body casts and full animatronics, everything you know is machined and. In, a, in an old school workshop, so you, you can't just you can fix stuff in post. But if I'd done it all CG, I don't think it would be having the same effect on people yeah. because I think you can once you see a see if you get if you think you're watching a computer thing, you, I don't think it's effective or mm. as scary as at least um, even if something's real and not done perfect, you, you still kind of you can touch it a bit. Yeah. So what is the crow doing? What stage are you at? We are very excitingly deep in pre-production. I've been sort of based in Wales. Um, we've, we've, it's all coming together. Very excitingly. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a project which, it's a dream come true. Yeah. You know, I, I was obsessed with the crow when I was 17. Um, dressed up as, as a crow and painted it on my bedroom walls in glow and a dark paint. And, uh, and you know, I loved the graphic novel as an art school when it came out. I remember a friend of mine kind of like going, "You've got to see this thing. It's like it's a guy injects morphine into his heart to like ease the pain and the loss of his grief, and he's on a revenge mission." And I just, you know, it felt really uh, exciting because it was so unhinged and so so um, beautiful and romantic and so brutal and you know, exciting and and gothic. And I'm you know, I'm a, I'm a heavy metal guy at heart, and so the the whole thing for me was like, that's my sort of superhero if there's one you know now with everything getting made and everything you know being done so it wasn't you know it, when it came around obviously I, I, I didn't set out to do the remake or a sequel and things but there's I mean I'll just show you this just I know you won't be able to see it on the on the podcast but we'll describe it you can explain but it will you know it's sort of there's um there's me <laughs> I don't know if you can see this at all. Yeah. Front rows, maybe. <laughs> it's proof. Wow. <laughs> proof so. of his fandom. There we go. Yeah. 
This one's That's this amazing. one's particularly disturbing somehow. Actually. I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> yeah. So, That's extraordinary! Wow, that looks amazing. So, so I, I mean, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I am. I am the nerd who um, wants this to be done right, and uh, and I know how so much it means, and it's a particularly sort of iconic special project to so many people, and mm-hmm. um, I'm just uh, pouring everything that I can into it to, to do it justice, and particularly looking to the graphic novel, which where it all came from, James O'Barr's very personal story. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I won't say too much at this stage. But now you said pre-production in Wales, which is not the place I immediately associate with Crow. Do you have an idea yet where you'll be shooting, or is that still being nailed down? It's going to be in, in, in the UK. Oh, okay. Right? So we're keeping it, but but uh, it's not set there. Right. Okay. okay. And uh, um, one last thing about the about the Crow. Uh, I don't know whether you can answer this or not, but uh, Jack Houston recently. Yeah. Uh, had to pull out of the project. Yeah, I mean, uh, these things happen yeah. in films, and uh, Jack's wonderful and uh, a great actor. Mm. And um, But I also believe that it's all meant to be, and mm. it's um, fate, and there's, there's some very exciting developments that I can't say about right now, but you'll probably hear about pretty soon. Mm. So it's not something that, because uh, it's not quite the 11th hour in terms of no. shooting and stuff, and I know you've been doing a lot of prep recently, a lot yeah, of yeah. location scouting and whatnot, but... So when an actor does drop out, that's at the 10th hour. Does that, does that instill you, is there a sense of panic or do you take it with a sense of calmness? And, okay, we can just, we can get through this. We'll, you know, yeah, we'll yeah. I mean, I've actually, The Hallow was so, such a kind of hardcore, intense experience, both, you know, massive challenge to try and make it and pull it off. And everyone on it was, um, just worked so hard. And, but there was just so many of these kind of things that happen every day. Every day, some monumental thing would go wrong, and it had to be overcome. And I think that's pretty much his filmmaking. I mean, like for in pre-production, or just fighting for every part. So really, you know, anything like this on the crow, it's just, just it's, all I know is that's the way. You know, you just go, okay, you've got to deal with that now, mm. and and you get on. And I'm, I'm sort of firm believer in um, things have to be a challenge, or they're not. You know, you're not risking enough. So there's just stuff that's out of you know, God, mm. you know, actors and schedules and. Um, you know, that, there's so much more to deal with, so it's all going to be fine. But yeah. Did you show us those pictures because you are going to play the crowd? Yes. That's been my secret ploy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Just, um, yeah. When when Stephen Norrington was scheduled to direct this so yeah. many many years ago now, I mean he was talking about you know kind of changing the tone from the original making. He, I think it was mysterious and documentary style, not necessarily words I'd put together usually, but mm. that was kind of his idea. Do you? Mm. How would you sum up your kind of your tone? I guess that you're going for. Is there is there a way to do? I it? would just say it's it's it's. I want it to be the sort of deepest, most sort of emotionally connective, heartbreaking and and head breaking. Um, Experience, you know. Wow. You know, I mean, it, it is. It's, it's it's all. It's a classic story of revenge, love, and loss, and, and it's got to be violent, and it's got to be um, tragic, and it's got to be. But I want it to have heart as well, and I, I don't want it to. It can't, you know, as much as how how sort of moving that is, it can't be bleak. Yeah. So there's some things you'll we'll get. You'll see. You know. Can I have this iron brew? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Were you at the KD last night as well? I did. Well, <laughs> I, I went there and, and I was waiting for the band and I did one little dance, tried my... I kept, couldn't walk backwards for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Dancing, turning, walking backwards was too much and then I had to come here, so I missed most of the, the good bit. But, okay. okay. Yeah. 
Uh, the armbrew, by the way, we should say, has been lovingly supplied by Dallas King, who's travelled all the way from is Aberdeen, Dallas, yeah, there you go. And he's also brought us these, these tonics, caramel logs. We might be throwing some of those in the audience uh, later on. And of course, Karen, you can have a caramel log, you can have a tea cake. It's, this it's is all, great. It's all no, good. I, it's I, all, it's I, all I good. still really associate this with coming to... I only drink armbrew if I come to Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get home and there'll be a truck backing up <laughs> with tons of armbrew because that's what happens every time someone mentions it on the Emperor podcast. Mm. Um, I just want to go back, not to dredge up horrible memories or whatever, but you yeah. said the things would go wrong on the hallow on a daily basis. What was the worst thing that went wrong? Oh, man. <laughs> no, I mean, so much went right, don't get me wrong. It's just, you know... <laughs> there was a particularly... If, if, I don't know who's seen the film. Who's seen, who saw the film last night? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For a few, for a few. Okay, cool. Well, there's a, a very important scene when the lead actress has to go into the lake. This is a poster, actually. And it, it was something we talked about a lot, and she had to go, um, you know, well, I wanted to do it for real, and we checked the lake out, and we prepared it, and done a lot of wrecking, and it was, it had to get lighting trucks in to light this particular stretch, and it's very complex. And safety, and you know, getting a lead actress to go in the lake in in Ireland in at four in the morning is nothing glamorous <laughs> about it. There was I was in a wetsuit, and anyway, so it was the day of that, and she was you know obviously a bit nervous about it. And when we arrived there for the night shoot, we everyone was looking a bit sheepish. And um, to cut a long story short, and I won't go into who or how or why, but the <laughs> the, the the generator that powers these huge lights had sort of slipped off a little causeway, was hanging with its back end, drizzling diesel down into the um, oh. the little stream. And the, the guys were like, oh, a little bit of diesel's leaked in. And uh, anyway, on investigation, it was pooling out like a kind of rainbow, in, in like, like the thing in Creepshow 2. Yes, and, yes. Um, and uh, anyway, it was just like, it was not it was not good. And, and, and we couldn't obviously, we had to make a quick decision and also we needed to get it investigated to make sure everything was fine and get it removed and all this. Um, but it meant we couldn't do it. So, you know, we were there with the entire crew and all the stunt guys and everything, and you can't then film the scene that you've spent the entire sort of shoot preparing for, and you have to make a quick decision of, like, what do we do? Yeah. And it was a small, intimate shoot, really. There's only about 30 of us. And um, so, you know, at that moment, you have to go, right, we're going to do the driving shots back to the studio and then wreck the car in the studio and sort of, you know, we had plans, obviously, you do have plan B and everything but mm. it was um, that kind of thing you know? oh my god well all's well that ends well yeah <laughs> so, sorry. that's all the time I have with, uh, with Karn best of luck with the hello and indeed the crow Karn Hardy everybody you have to keep clapping till I get off the stage <laughs> <laughs> no seriously keep clapping stop <laughs> <laughs> Corn Hardy there. Uh, and next up is our third and final guest. Uh, she's one of our finest actresses. Uh, she's been fantastic in the likes of Young Adam, Red Belt, Match Point, 30 Rock, Shutter Island. I could go on. Uh, she can be seen here in a theatrical version of her brilliant sky comedy, uh, Doll and M. Will you please welcome the wonderful Emily Mortimer. <laughs> Oh my god, no sense of direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It would not be a good idea to start by falling off the stage. <laughs> I, know. I was thinking, how am I going to get past these slats with my yeah. high heels? Yeah, it's not, it's not no, there. We'll, we'll have this covered up next year, don't worry. It'll be fine. Uh, welcome, how are you? I'm really good, thank you. How Excellent. are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you very much. Uh, so you're here with uh, Dolan in, which is a show I love. Uh, and this is a theatrical version of the second season? Yes. Oh, sorry, second series, because we're in Britain. Uh, second series. <laughs> second season. Over here. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, we... Um, but But... We screened um, we screened the first season theatrically too at okay. the London Film Festival last year, and um, and it kind of is it sort of fits the way that we envisioned the show. Not to sound too sort of highfalutin about the whole thing, but we we yeah. had always we started off really wanting to make a movie, um, a kind of in, independent movie uh, with this idea. Mm-hmm. And and then our friend Azazel Jacobs, who's a, a brilliant filmmaker, some of you may, may know his movies, um, was really interested in in filming it. And at the at the early stages, it was just an idea. And he uh, shot some footage, kind of guerrilla style, just of, of of me in my trailer, actually on the newsroom with Dolly. Um, and and we just did a few scenes and edited it. To, together just to see what we had and um and he rang us up and he said this is a this is a pilot this is a, a first episode of something uh-huh. and it shouldn't be a film it should be on the telly and so uh we watched it and we kind of agreed and actually pretty much everything that we shot in in that sort of experiment is the first episode of the first season of of Don and M and that's what we took to wow. Sky and they commissioned us to write five more and make it but we always wanted it to feel like a film sort of spread over six episodes um, mm. with a beginning, a middle and an end and a, and a kind of narrative uh, coherence and to have uh, the feeling of a, of a movie. And so that's why we kept Uzza, the same filmmaker, for the whole time and the DP's the same and um, and everybody comes from the indie indie cinema, really, yeah. who helped make, make it. Fantastic. I mean, as for people who may not have seen Doll and M, uh, can you explain what the concept it's it's the idea was uh, you know what happens when you make your best friend your personal assistant and and you know the answer is just everything goes terribly <laughs> wrong um, and um, and it was just a really simple idea and we've been trying to write something together me and Dolly Wells my best friend since I was four um, had been trying to write together for years and years and years and, and, uh, and never come up with any... I mean, it was really... It was starting to get embarrassing. It was, we, <laughs> we were writing a screenplay that was like the screenplay that he's writing in The Shining. It didn't, it didn't really exist. There were lots of pieces of paper with nothing really on them. And, uh, and then suddenly we knew we had to get on with something, otherwise our friends were going to start to sort of be scared. Um, and... Uh, and and we had this like we just came up with this idea of and and this kind of servant master relationship and and it mm-hmm. was just suddenly so we just it it, it it went from having taken ten years to get anything together to we wrote the whole thing and filmed it and aired it in the space of about sort of seven months or something once we had the idea so it was just a very simple sort of little light bulb that went off. The dynamic between the two, you two shifts slightly in the second yes. season. Yes, And you start to collaborate on a play. Yes. And there's a hilarious scene where um, t- two actresses come in and, and, and they think it's an informal meeting, but you're actually kind of auditioning them. 
Yeah. Have you ever had an experience like that yourself, where you've sort of guerrilla auditioned? <laughs> where I've been guerrilla auditioned? Yeah. Well, every audition just feels like the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to you. It, it all feels like you're being ambushed and sort of, I don't know, just treated deeply unfairly. And I was remembering the other day, my worst audition ever was, uh, was I just had my first baby and I was auditioning for that film Black Dahlia. Did you ever see yeah. that? Um, yeah. Brian De Palma movie. And I was auditioning for the part of the like femme fatale, you know, and it was, it was just, my baby was about three months old and I drove to this audition with way too much makeup on, having squeezed myself into my jeans, just feeling so horribly not femme fatalish and <laughs> so sort of anxious about the fact that I just had this baby and surely they were going to know that and you just had to look at me to know that and they were just not going to think uh, sexy was not the word that immediately sprung to mind. <laughs> anyway, and you're slightly mad when you've just had a baby. Well, I am anyway. And um, <laughs> So, I, you know, your brain is, is functioning in a kind of different way and I went in there I was obsessing about the fact that they would know I just had this baby and they wouldn't think I was sexy enough to play this part and uh, and it was Brian De Palma and Josh Hartnett were there and um, and Josh Hartnett and they they asked me about the baby and they said you just had a baby and I went yes and they said um, <laughs> so when did you have the bit how old is the baby that's right and I I did the weirdest most <laughs> fucked up thing I said <laughs> I lied, but I lied by about two weeks, which was so peculiar. So I said, instead of saying he was 12 weeks old, but instead of saying 12 weeks, I said 10 weeks. <laughs> I think to try for them to be even more surprised by how quickly I'd got back into shape or, and, to, and to think, my God, if she can get back in that shape that, you know, in only 10 weeks, then what will she be like by the time? I don't know what my logic was. But I said 10 weeks and they both went, oh, you know, great. And then, and then one or other of them said, so when's this birthday? And I... <laughs> birthday because none of neither of them would have worked done the math <laughs> I started doing the math and I was like I was trying to work out what, what the 26th of October plus two weeks would be and I was like uh, uh and the longest it was like a pause that went on forever then, in answer to the question when is your child's birthday and finally I went um Somewhere near the beginning of October. <laughs> it's embargoed. And at that moment, everyone in the room, including myself, wanted me to leave. It was like, this woman is a maniac. <laughs> so every audition is just horrendous. And, and uh, yeah, there, we have a similar... I mean, I guess in, in the one in Dolan M, uh, we are auditioning Olivia Wilde and Evan Rachel Wood and uh, just being incredibly sort of demeaning <laughs> to them and sort of humiliating them in this audition and Dolly's telling them that they should do English accents and then they're both saying they are doing English accents. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, that we sort of get, it's a bit of role reversal that goes on. <laughs> there are lots of, lots of great cameos. Do you yeah. have any dream cameos for going forward with the show? Maybe I'd like Ewan McGregor back again in every episode. <laughs> uh, you know, Ewan was in it and he is um, just so great and funny and charming and wonderful, and as you know. Um, and uh, no, I mean, with the, the, the mistake that we made this time is that we've got our entire family in it. Um, which, <laughs> and so my husband is playing my fake husband, my husband in the play that we put on. Dolly's husband is playing my real husband. 
my children, my son is playing my fake son in the play that we put on. Dolly's children are playing my real children. <laughs> Both of our mothers are in it. Uh, Do you and... go, go home with the wrong people? At the end yeah. of the day? <laughs> and they're all the, the, the. It was a fatal error because they are all now just so unimpressed by. They just think it's the easiest thing on earth to act. So because they're all brilliant in it, and uh, and they're just like, why do you ever complain about this job? It's so easy. You just have to turn up and say your lines, and and you're brilliant, you know. And they and they've seen how good they all are. So now they're all the, the wool has been, I don't know, not pulled over their eyes, and they're um, they're just deeply unimpressed by our job. <laughs> would, would it not have been easy at some point, to, I don't know, to have Alessandro play your husband on the show? Would that, would, it's an interesting blurring of fact and fiction. If you're, you're I know. Playing. Well, I think that, I think without knowing it, unconsciously, we were, right from the beginning, we were interested in blurring fact and fiction. Mm. And, I mean, we hate that it's called Doll and M, and our director is entirely responsible for that. And, <laughs> and well, a combination of him just sort of, I don't know, doing that to us and then us being too lazy to argue him out of it. But hmm. uh, he wrote Doll and M on... Because when we were doing our little practice kind of guerrilla-style 20-minute uh, thing that turned into the pilot, we were calling each other Doll and M just because that's what we called each other. Yeah. But we were thinking that, well, we won't do that when it comes to the real thing. And then he wrote Doll and M on the top of it, you know, when he sent it to us. And, and then it just became that, even in the process while we were selling it. And we didn't really think about it, and we just couldn't really be bothered to do anything about it. And then we went to Cannes to the television festival. Sky flew us out there, and there was suddenly this huge poster with Doll and M written on it. And we were just like, oh, no. <laughs> All our friends are just going to hate us. I mean, this is just so embarrassing. And... Um, and the first question we got asked in the, you know, panel or whatever there was by this quite sort of highfalutin French film journalist, and he said, um, you know, tell tell us, tell me, uh, you know, do you think this uh, this vogue for semi autobiographical, um, <laughs> you know, comedy television, you think it is? Uh, what he say? Is it? Uh, uh, it's the height of masochism uh, or uh, e e egotism or something. Right. <laughs> is it masochism? Is, is, is it deep masochism or deep, deep egoism? Egotism. Yeah. And uh, we were like, oh, fuck. Both <laughs> 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 probably. Oh, what have we done? Can't we not, can we stop calling it Dolan M and not be asked <laughs> these questions? But I think that you know, begrudgingly, it, I have to admit that there's something about even the quality of uh, the the feeling of watching it is uh, part of the pleasure and the sort of pain of watching it is the blur mm. that goes on between reality and and fiction and and not quite and because we set up this relationship which is really just our relationship. I mean, the way that we talk to each other and get on with each other on the show is how. I mean, not get on with each other, we get on with each other much better in real life than we do on the show, but just that our rapport is so authentic because it really is our rapport. And so I think that kind of wrong foots people immediately and they're like, oh my God, we're watching reality and then we do terrible things to each other and uh, <laughs> awful things happen and you're like, oh God, what, which part of this is real and which part isn't and are they really as awful as that in real life? Um, and I, I think that's become part of the... 
yeah, the pleasure and the agony of watching the, the thing. So then once that was established, then putting your parents and your children and your husbands and husbands playing with each other's husbands, and it's all part of the same thing. And a lot of the theme of, oh, God, I'm going to start sounding really pretentious now, but <laughs> no, whatever, you'll see. <laughs> Watch it. You'll work out the themes you'll for yourself. You'll all see. I have to ask you about working with Martin Scorsese. Yes. Did you lie to him? Yes. How do you know? I don't know, I'm just... <laughs> I was just guessing. Brian De Palma. Oh, because I lied to Brian De Palma. Oh my God, this is terrifying. Oh, Go on. Yes, your honour, I did. <laughs> That's a brilliant interview question. You should just ask that. That should be every question you ask to every person, because they're just going to, of course, have lied to everyone. Um, and you feel like you must have the information there because you've trolled the internet oh okay I did lie to Martin Scorsese but can I can I really I don't know I'm trying to work out whether I can admit what the lie was it was such a white lie but <laughs> let me ask you another question whilst you whilst you, whilst you consider the okay, legal I'm gonna, ramifications I'm going to tell you the story but I'm not going to tell you who it concerns but I he is a big film buff as you know yeah. that's an understatement like that's his that is his thing and and it's incredible being around him because his love of of movies is 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 you know his passion for his craft is all about being obsessed by other people's movies and and every uh, shot is a reference to uh, uh, you know a shot in in some other film and he knows everything about movies he's seen every movie and even the ones that are just coming out like you know, when we were doing Hugo, he had just seen Archipelago and he was obsessed by that. And uh, he just knows, every, he's just a real um, uh, film lover of film, like the, the, the ultimate. Mm. Anyway, there's this one particular film that he really loves. And <laughs> I'm going to tell you, fuck it, it doesn't matter. Okay, <laughs> there's this one particular film that he really loves and it's called The Red Shoes and it's the best film ever really and um and it stars Myra Shearer and who and Myra Shearer uh, my dad was a friend of Lud of Ludovic Kennedy who was married to Myra Shearer who was this famous ballerina and they did come to lunch a couple of times <laughs> when I was a child so I do remember Myra Shearer in my parents house and how elegant she was and beautiful she was and of course, then when we start, Martin Scorsese starts talking about the red shoes, I piped up that I had knew Myra Sheeran, and that my dad was a friend of <laughs> Ludovic Kennedy. And but I didn't really lie, but I probably made it seem like more of a, an intense relationship <laughs> than it was. And so then I get the call <laughs> after we've done this movie saying, will you, m Mr. Scorsese would love you to come and present the red shoes, which is, <laughs> which is being re-released because he's done the colour correction on all of, you know, he's, and would, would you come? And I was like, yes, you know, and we know. And then it was like, we're, he's, we're all so excited. We know what a friend you were of Myra Shearer's. And I was ringing up my mum, just crying on the phone, going, oh, my God, their children. Uh, do, how many children does she have? Are they going to be there? And then they're, they're, they're going to think that I will know them. And I don't. And, oh, my God, I can't When's possibly. When's her birthday? When's her birthday? <laughs> anyway, I hadn't really lied. I just... 
It's the same as that one. It's this, these white lies that get you into terrible trouble. You just panic. I mean, I had met Moira Shearer, and she was a good friend of my dad's, so I hadn't lied. <laughs> Have you lied since you've been on stage? No. <laughs> OK, that's good. I read somewhere that you almost got into his car by mistake. Yes. <laughs> that was during that conversation. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm just loving talking to him. And, and then he was going on and on more and more about Michael Powell. I mean, it is incredible being around him because he just wants to talk about movies. And if you have any interest in movies yourself, it's just like you can't believe it's happening. Anyway, we, it, it, we, I tried to get I didn't notice we were getting into his car. <laughs> I mean, I just was following him wherever he was going and then some, someone stepped in and sort of led me off. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Um, you've just joined Twitter. We've been talking a lot about Twitter a lot today. But, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. Does that mean you're, you're, not, you're not taking to it well? You're not liking it? I just feel like I don't know how to do it. Hmm. But... I'm hoping, hoping to learn. I don't... I mean, I, can, I find everything that I put on Twitter irritating. <laughs> and <laughs> I, right. I, I keep thinking, if I was looking at this without knowing me, I'd think, what an arsehole. Like, <laughs> who cares <laughs> about your life and your show? And your, I mean, I don't know. It's so hard to sort of... I think it is a different generational thing because my kid, my 11-year-old kid, has absolutely... And he's not at all vain or, you know, he... He's, he's such a sweet, sort of modest and wonderful person, but he has no problem with putting up millions of selfies and sort of, I don't know, chatting about himself <laughs> on, on, uh, on uh, line, which is what everybody's doing. And I think, but I just think if you're... If, uh, do you think it's a generational thing? I don't know. It just doesn't, it doesn't come naturally, that thing of documenting your own existence... Mm in that way every second of every day and, and in fo- keeping people up to date. I guess it's just self-promotions quite... I don't know. It's, I, find it, I find it really hard, but I don't find... I mean, I like, other, I like looking at other people's ones. It's just my own. just make me cringe. So I'm just doing, I'm just doing a tweet. I uh, just spoke to Emily Mortimer about how she doesn't like Twitter. And that's no, I love Twitter! I just hate my own tweets. I need, I need like, schooling. They should set up some sort of, like you know, academy of, to learn how to be cool on Twitter. Hash camp. Yeah. <laughs> For old people like me. This is a really random question. Is it true you share a birthday with Woody Allen? I don't know. No. 6th of October. Is that... No. No. <laughs> it's actually a real chat. birthday. The birthday <laughs> you did work with Woody Allen, though. Obviously, I did. on Match Point. Um, you, you played... A lady from Oxfordshire, which is where you're from. Yes. And, and I was interested in Woody Allen coming and making films over here. People tend to look at his films as like his American stuff and his European things. Did you help him get the kind of get the kind of cultural bearings in any way making that film? You didn't take him to Henley or no? Oh my god, no! But he just had the cultural bearings completely. He's so much uh, more of a sort of sophisticated world traveller than you would necessarily peg him. I mean, you think of him as just being such a New Yorker and being a fish out of water anywhere but New York mm. somehow, but he he goes all around the world anyway with his jazz, you know, playing, mm. and he loved being in London. He loved the weather. He loved that it rained every day. He hates the sun. Um, <laughs> and so he just loved the weather, and he loved the curry. That's the, the, yeah, he loved... Yeah, the Indian restaurants in London were just... just thrilling to him. Did you go for curry with him? 
No, but I talked a lot about curry with him. <laughs> I lied about curry. <laughs> <laughs> Endlessly. Oh, I love Mantric and Madras. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Emily, we're going to have to let you go. I've just got one last very quick question. Uh, you obviously were in Cars too. Uh, yes. Does that mean that you would be interested in co-hosting Top Gear? No. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> just thought you'd no. be uniquely qualified somehow, someone who actually was a car. <laughs> yeah, but I, I no. I mean... <laughs> You know, we're actors, man. <laughs> Fair enough. And I was pretending point. to be a car. Oh, I hate man. to disillusion you. Just pulled back the curtain and ruined the magic. Um, Wait, but I have one other thing to say. Okay. Which is, I am in another film today at the festival called Rio, I Love You, which if anyone has a chance to see, I think it's really good. It's an awesome collection of short films made. You know, it's the third in the series of... Mm. Uh, New York, uh, Paris, I love you. New York, I love you. And then now it's Rio, I love you. And I, my short was directed by Paolo Sorrentino, um, and they're all in, they're all in set in Rio. But there are fantastic actors and filmmakers, and I think it's a real treat and worth seeing. Wish you all the best, uh, Emily Mortimer. It's been a pleasure, Emily Mortimer, everybody. Thank you. Right, should we all go home? No, let's take some questions. We have some questions. Uh, if you guys have any questions you want to ask us, this is the sort of reader's questions section, but we usually we have them on Twitter, but now we're not going to have them on Twitter because you're going to ask them to yourselves. Uh, so we've got some roving microphones going around the room, attached to human arms. Don't be shy. And, uh, and do ask us, otherwise we're just going to sit here and stare at you in silence for 20 minutes. Uh, yes, there's a hand right at the back there. Right. Um, I think Helen was off when you reviewed Mark, uh, Mad Max, so I wondered if she'd sort out the feminist politics for me. <laughs> I, I like the Grudem common biker ladies, but I couldn't quite match them with the diaphanously see things hosing each other down, so I just wanted yeah. to you, uh, you talked about how you didn't like ladies as chattel. Yes, I don't, yeah. Mm. I feel a wee bit mixed up about the, the feminism of that. I think on one hand you've got female characters, which is good and I approve of and I think there should be more of. Positive, negative, I don't care, just characters. But on the other hand, there is this whole... It starts off as women's chattel. It starts off as this assumption that the moment that civilization slips away at all, then women get reduced to objects again, uh, or to a greater extent than they ever have been. And I, I don't particularly like that as, a, as an apocalyptic meme. I feel like we've seen it a heck of a lot and kind of tired of it. I do have some sympathy with... I saw somebody online objecting that uh, Charlize Theron's uh, Furiosa had saved the hot women who were kept as property but not the larger ladies who were providing milk. There's something to be said for like she didn't get everybody, she just got one tiny group of <coughs> healthy people. But at the same time I think it's a big step in the right direction because I mean a Furiosa alone I think would, would make the case pretty much. Yeah, I think if we were here talking about that, we'd be here all day. Yeah. Would you be? No, normally Which I say something light-hearted and irreverent, but I'm not, I'm not gonna. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> gonna John Stewart it. Yeah. No, Jurassic World on it, never mind. Don't get started, don't get started. Uh, any more questions attached to hands, attached to people? Yes, please. You, sir, with the lovely blue T-shirt here in the second row. Hi. Um, getting spoilers and stuff. Um, fusing two creatures together. If you could fuse two actors together, 
who could you? What, who would you pick? Well, it'd be Benedict Cumberbatch and Tom Hiddleston because then the internet would just be destroyed, wouldn't it? <laughs> what, what would you call it? Cumberston? Hiddlebatch? Hiddlebatch. Hiddlebatch. It would be the Hiddlebatch. Also, that sounds like a good name for a monster. Yeah. No. Benny Jur- Tom Hiddlebatch. <laughs> Jurassic World 2, The Hiddlebatch. Yeah. The Hiddlebatch has escaped confinement. <laughs> I said out of containment. <laughs> it's really good looking. for swooning. It's killing for sport. It's 40 feet tall and it's just really nice. <laughs> <laughs> and ever so versatile. Uh, well done, yeah. Hiddlebatch. Well good. It, it would like roam the city quoting Shakespeare at people if you tell them. <laughs> It would, yeah, it would probably kill us all. How about young Gary Busey and old Gary Busey? <laughs> <laughs> like really, 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 really well acted stuff that's totally loopy. Yeah. Wouldn't we- he explode? I mean, I think he probably already has. Let's but- find out. <laughs> yeah, like Time Cops. Time mm. Cops? That's a sequel. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Phil, who would you who would you fuse together? Christoph Koslowski, presumably, <laughs> and the what? Indominus Rex. Director. I know, but you'd fuse them together, wouldn't you? Woody Allen and Wes Anderson. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who would I fuse together? Actors-wise. Yeah. Um, Gene this... Hackman's my favourite actor, uh-huh. so I'd probably fuse him to something formidable. <laughs> to like Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. <laughs> <laughs> Stay Puft Marshmallow Hackman. Just stole me across New York as Popeye Doyle. Anywhere we can get about. Do you see this, by the way, as being like a surgical fusion? Or do we take it? I'm intrigued. Or DNA? Or is this a human centipede type deal? Oh, or? no. I take that the Gary Busey thing. <laughs> oh, okay. A DNA, DNA, just DNA. Not just like a pantomime DNA. horse with, with Cumberbatch at one end and Hiddleston at the other, because I'm pretty sure I've seen that tumbler. Um, <laughs> Anyway, should we have another question? Yeah. Uh, Helen, you didn't say anyone, did you? I don't really have... I don't know. How yeah. can you I'm top torn. that? How can I top the, the Hiddle Beast? <laughs> you can't. <laughs> uh, right, any other questions? Yes, please, sir. Here in the, in the third row with the shirt and the hands. This might be redundant. We don't know who the, who the new Spider-Man is yet, do we? Uh, no, we don't. No, no. Um, Let me just check. Ass- assuming no. it's not Martin Freeman, who, who would you want? <laughs> I would want Martin Freeman, yeah. I want a Hiddle Batch. <laughs> Boosie. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to, them to do Miles Morales' Spider-Man, actually. Just, like, let's mix it up a little bit and, and try something different and maybe fresher. But maybe that's just because I just... I really, really didn't get on board the Amazing Train. I just... The Amazing Train? The Amazing Spider-Man Train. Oh, right, OK. <laughs> it wasn't that fast a train. It you could have got on it. I could, pro- but I just couldn't be bothered to run for it because aside from Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone, what did it have going for it, really? Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. <laughs> That's pretty much it, yeah. No, it's, yeah, I agree. I didn't I get on a, the Amazing Train a, either. He needs to be, like, the smartest whippiest talking like just quick yeah. witted teen ever like a, I'm not well, sure who that is yet a really was, really really young Woody Allen <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I'd watch it I mean I, I would watch it yeah I was about to launch into Woody Allen impression then I realised A, a it's dangerous and B uh, I couldn't do one oh so, so you couldn't you couldn't be this right yeah <laughs> Uh, that would be that would be it, basically, wouldn't it? Yes, please. Here in the fifth row. I'm a row counter. I can do that. It's amazing. Hi. Yeah, they're obviously remaking Ghostbusters with an all-female cast. Um, which other comedy, uh, sort of male leads, would you remake with women? Who would you like in it? Ooh. Uh, Bridesmaids and <laughs> Kristen Wiig. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Uh... I know this is a fun question, but yeah. I almost feel like it's, you know, you could pick any, couldn't you? I mean, it would be good. Animal House. That would be... Actually, yes. Uh, Phil showed me this incredible video 
And I'm, I think yeah, of myself. Like, the time. <laughs> I, I think of myself. Two girls. I think of myself as a bit of a like. I know all the viral videos, but you showed me Michael Shannon reading this insane yes. sorority girl clip. Has anybody heard of this? Where this sorority girl who's like in charge of like Alpha Gamma Delta, I don't know, rails on her troop of performing normal people who happen to be in this all-female sorority, and that shit is crazy, man. Like that is full on. And I could see an animal house. Hopefully, it wouldn't be as bloodthirsty as mm. that. But yeah, but yeah, it could be like it could be like a little bit beyond Pitch Perfect in terms of like yeah. gross mm. out, with a little bit less acapella singing. I think that could, yep. that could work. Absolutely, yep. make it more difficult to cast at a certain age, for example, because all I can think about is Kristen Wiig. They can all star Kristen Wiig. They can all star Kristen Wiig. She's amazing. I, w- I would remake Police Academy, but. With Muppets. No, um, <laughs> yeah, I think Police Academy lends itself to a remake. I'm, I'm kind of surprised they have. I'm, I'm, I, I am think too, there was actually. tentatively yeah. Yeah. discussions to remake it. Police Academy. The remaking, don't, we say this in the podcast all the time, don't remake good films. There's talk of remaking The Naked Gun with Ed Helms as, as Frank Trevitt. No, leave it alone. Police Academy, even though it's, I saw it loads when I was a kid, is rubbish. So remake that. But leave Police Academy for Citizens on Patrol, my friend. Uh, leave it alone. Hi, uh, with a future day from Back to the Future 2 this year, uh, and things haven't quite lived up to those expectations, <laughs> what uh, movie future would you like to see actually happen, considering a lot of them are quite bad? <laughs> the movies are terrible, I'm not defending the movies, but Star Trek The Next Generation, because, you know, it's all happy and, you know... Mm. Clean. Clean. and it's really and, clean. Yeah, and there's, you know... Yeah. Good, yeah, yeah, like self-opening doors, like some kind of magic. I know, right? And like they, they work on these pads, and they just sort of like enter stuff in, and then it's all there. It's amazing. And That'd you've got crazy. these little objects that you just tap, and then you can just talk to anyone. It's crazy. <laughs> so that so that would be mine. Yep. That pretty would be cool. pretty cool. Uh, I would like to see the Cars universe come true. <laughs> uh, is that it, a sci-fi? It, well, if you pause it, you got, my theory about Cars is that they've killed humanity and taken over <laughs> the world. Now, that can either be really bleak, or um, another wrinkle I've just come up with is that each car is a former human soul. So, in actual in fact, it's probably the best thing for humanity because we get to drive really fast and, you know, we get to do races and stuff and we don't have to any worry about all the death and whatnot, that, you know, it's just cars. What if it's that great. was the other Matrix? Yeah. So in one Matrix, it's Keanu Reeves, and in the other Matrix, it's cars. <laughs> I think you've, you've just I'll take whatever pill mind. you give me. I want to be in that world. Wow. I mean, that's a really tough... You get born, you're in this incubation egg, and there's, like, red, red pill, blue pill. One's, like, kick-ass kung fu. The other one's pretending to be a car. <laughs> Not pretending to be a car. You were trapped inside the car. You are the Actually, car. Actually, that doesn't... You Sounds become a good now. <laughs> this gentleman down here. This young gentleman here, the Minions fan, absolutely. Just wait for the microphone, sir. It's coming this way. Could you keep it, like, you know, PG, please? <laughs> Is there any films that you would like to see a sequel to that haven't had a sequel? It's a great question. So great we probably won't be able to do it justice. Princess Bride, he wrote, he's written, like, the first chapter of the next book. He's never written the book itself, as far as I know. It's called Buttercup's Baby. And uh, it begins with a chapter called, and this is very upsetting, The Death of Fezzig. Um, oh! <laughs> it's really gratifying. Uh, I would like to see that done. I guess it would be animation with the original cast voicing it. That would be my sequel I've never seen. I never will see that I would like to see. Any plums? I, I brought it up earlier when we were doing, uh, you know, spot prices, but ants. 
<laughs> yeah, it's an underrated film. Actually, I really like it. Yeah. Like, I really like it. And bizarrely, that didn't win the Bugs Life War, which I never really understood. Is that the one with Woody Allen? Mm-hmm. Yes, and no. Sliced Alone. And... Yeah, I don't so much laugh in the face of death, I stand behind it and belittle it. Yeah. It's, it's very funny. It, like, is, it is very funny. funny. Yeah. It is very funny. Ants, Ants too. Wow, yeah, I'd like to see that. Phil? Hmm. I don't know. I'm, I love Out of Sight. Um, I would see a sequel to that. Oh, mm-hmm. I don't know if Elmore... I'm so bad at this. There I don't even know if Elmore Leonard did write another book. He did. Did he? He did. Well, I'd like, I'd like to see that then. That would be good. There you go. Would Ashley like to see a sequel to John Carpenter's The Thing, uh, which you probably haven't seen, but believe me, it's a treat waiting in store for you. <laughs> <laughs> and it has... Literally. It has Lee Great. I don't want a sequel, but really I do, ending to find out what happens to two characters in particular. And that's all I'm going to say on that. Um, and in fact, that's all I'm going to say... Uh, in general, uh, because that's it for this week's Empire Podcast, this, uh, this live Empire Podcast at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. It's been a blast. Uh, join us next week. We're back in the studio in London for more film-related fun. We're going to be with, uh, joined by Hayley Atwell, star of Agent Carter. Uh, that's going to be an absolute belter. It's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Ali. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Phil. Mushy mushy. And there's just time to thank all the people who made this podcast possible, from Jamie, Becky and Claire at Organic, uh, everyone who gave us spot prizes to give out to you guys before the podcast began, Nerdo T-shirts, Substance, Organic, Studio Canal, Fetch PR, Mark Jones, E1, and Bain Sweets in the grass market, which didn't uh, give us sweets, but they gave us a discount and some wonky marshmallow, uh, which was very nice. Uh, the Film House, of course, uh, the entire team at the Edinburgh International Film Festival, including Harriet Warman and Kirsty Tuff. Dallas King, who's been very diligent keeping timings down there. Our brilliant guests, Emily Mortimer, Robert Sheehan, and Corin Hardy, who's still here. And uh, of course, you guys, we could not have done this without you. Thank you so much for turning up uh, in numbers. Uh, that's it from us. I'm off to choose life. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye.